1987, and NASA launches the last of America's deep space probes. In a freak mishap, Ranger 3 and its pilot, Captain William Buck Rogers, are blown out of their trajectory into an orbit which freezes his life support systems and returns Buck Rogers to Earth 500 years later.
All right, enough of that. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff Wittellis. This is being brought to you live and recorded live at around 9.30 p.m. on December 6th, 2019. I opened the show with a bunch of 1970s TV show themes, which I could have kept going. I have a whole lot of these. I could have let it go for like 45 minutes, but I spared you just as Doctor Who was beginning. We have a free roll coming up at 9.35 p.m. pretty soon, but you have 25 minutes of late registration to get in there. It is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It is a $65 free roll this week. You have until 10 p.m. to get in there, Pacific Time. You can find it near the top of the screen, and you click that, and you go in. It's a separate system that's actually run in a different country. The No Fraud Online Poker Room is actually run out of England by Belly Buster, a listener to the show, and I appreciate that he does this. And you need a separate account there, and to understand the rules and the qualifications and the way you register all that, PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll. You need to read PokerFraudAlert.com slash freeroll, all lowercase, and you will understand everything. And make sure that you qualify before the show starts. Otherwise, you will not win any of the free money we give away each week, which I can pay you in various ways. I can pay you by Bitcoin, by bank transfer, Zelle, Cash App, and one other way, a way people have been sending money on the internet to each other for about 20 years now. If you let me know, I can pay you that way as well. You can either PM me on the forum, Dan Space Druff. You can text me, 775-372-8355. Or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. The $65 we are giving away this week all came from Willie McFML. Thank you very much to him. The prizes all break down as follows. We have three of them this week. 32 for first place, 20 for second place, and 13 for third. 32 for first. 20 for second, 13 for third. The free roll started nine minutes ago, but you have till 10 p.m., 16 minutes from now to get in. I always have people messaging me like frantically during the show and they want to get validated or they want instructions to get into the free roll. And there's only so much I can do in the final minutes leading up to the show. It's very frantic, always getting ready for the show. I always think of things at the last minute that I have to do but forgot. So, let's do the rest of the intro. We'll get going. We'll have Trader Ruski on as we usually do. But first, I want to go through the intro stuff, and then we will get to everything else. The phone number to the show, as always, 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is how that breaks out. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. 702-430-1808. It's an old 70s rotary phone sitting on top of Mount Charleston which is near Las Vegas and forged to me wherever I go. You can also text the main number, not the Mount Charleston number. An old 70s rotary phone cannot get a text. But the main number can, 775-372-8355. If you text that number, I will respond to you. And I may read your text on the show unless you say at the beginning, don't read on show. Unless it's an ongoing conversation we've been having, then I will know not to. But if it's not obvious not to, I may read your text on the show, so be careful. If you want to chat during the show in the chat room, just click on the chat button near the top of the screen. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads can get in there, but most other devices can. And you need a verified forum account in good standing to get into the chat room. And it's only worth chatting during the live show. If you're listening in the archives, there will be nobody there, so don't bother. 
The Call to Listen line is a phone number you can use to listen to the show anywhere, anytime, from any phone. It does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or the internet. No, it just requires any phone that can dial, and it will never buffer. It'll never freeze. It'll never slow down. All these things that suck about listening to streaming content on the web, these things do not happen on the call to listen line because the call to listen line is not on the web. It's not on the internet. It's a phone number and you make a regular phone call to it and it will always play without ever stopping. 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736 is our call to listen line. And there's an alternate number, 641-741-1095. Those are our two call-to-listen lines. You cannot reach the show calling that number, but you can hear the show. That means you can't talk to me, but you can listen to me. And that works for the live show, and it works for the streaming reruns, which we do when we're not live. Different ways to listen to the show. You can listen live through the call-to-listen line. You can listen through the radio tab. It should autoplay. If it does not autoplay when you go to the radio tab, then click on the link for the iPhone link, iPhone and iPad link on there. That'll play for any device pretty much, or most devices. All computers will play it. Click on whatever other appropriate link is there for your device to listen live. You can also use the TuneIn app. TuneIn app, you'll see two entries for Poker Fraud Alert Radio. One is for the live show, one is for online. You can use Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and it will do it. If you want to listen in the archives... Several ways. The TuneIn app, again, can be used. The Stitcher app, the Bullhorn app, iTunes, Google Play, and Alexa. You can say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. If you put the word podcast at the end, it will play the last show that's in our archives. Lots of ways to listen, and if for whatever reason you want something added that is not too much trouble and does not cost me too many of my Jew dollars, then I will add more listening options. I want to make it easier for you to listen to this show, not more difficult. Many other shows say you will listen the way that we tell you to. You will listen to the way that we want you to listen. And I say, no, I want you to listen in any way that you want to listen. Because I know as a podcast listener myself, I hate when I want to listen in a certain way and they don't think it's worth supporting. By the way, you can also download the MP3 file of the show from the radio forum. It's called now called the Radio Archives Forum, or Archives, if you will. You can find that now, I think, the third forum down. I rearranged it this week, so it's easier to find. So just go to the forum and click Radio Archives, and they're all listed there. You can just play or download the MP3. And here's a quick hint for you. Pretty much any device, if you just click on an MP3 file, it'll just play with no kind of other player needed. It's a very easy way to listen. So those are the ways you can listen to the show. I will give you the agenda, then we'll connect Traderuski, and then we will get going. You still have 11 minutes to get into the free roll. By the way, if you do want to call the show, try to do it either when I say I'm taking calls or do it between topics. If you call and attempt to interrupt a topic, I probably won't take your call. And if you try to hammer the phone number over and over in a way to get me to answer, I'll probably just block you. Okay, so here's the agenda. By the way, interesting variety of people listening tonight including my ex-girlfriend Miri is listening. She's listening with her current boyfriend to her ex-boyfriend. That's really happening right now. Okay, so anyway, here's the agenda. I don't play many World Series of Poker Circuit events, and that would explain my record in World Series of Poker Circuit events. You might wonder, how have I done in the circuit events that I've played going back a number of years? Well, I will tell you, the total number of caches that I have received 
in World Series of Poker circuit events adds up to... Zero point zero. Sad but true. So I played my only circuit event of the year. By the way, I almost broke that streak last year. I should have broken that streak last year because I was 10th out of 91, but somehow that was not a cash. Don't ask me how that was not a cash because it was past 10% left of the field. I got past 90%, but somehow I still didn't cash. It was at 9th, and I went out 10th. I wasn't short stacked either with 10 left. But I played that very same event this year. In fact, it was yesterday. I will tell you how that went. Speaking of the World Series of Poker Circuit, Maurice Hawkins, who has definitely been of some controversy in the last few years involving uh, owing money and other stuff related to that. But we're not going to talk about that tonight. We'll, we'll leave Maurice alone as far as that's concerned. He, he once even wrote to me on Poker Fraud Alert and demanded I take certain things down, and I told him no. But we're going to talk about something else that he complained to Poker News this week about the World Series of Poker Circuit, which is interesting because he has 13 World Series of Poker Circuit rings. I think he's actually the all-time leader in circuit rings. Circuit rings, by the way, are, it's just like a bracelet, except that's what you get for winning a circuit event. Circuit events, you get a ring. The world, regular World Series events, you get a bracelet. So he has 13 World Series of Poker Circuit rings, and yet he was complaining in Poker News about the World Series of Poker Circuit that there are many things wrong with it. And I will tell you what he complained about and how I feel about that. I have an update on the Ray Davis criminal case. I found out some new things since last week. I'm going to update you. I told you anything new I find out, I will let you know. So I have found out some new things, things that uh, really only Poker Fraud Alert has become aware of and published. We've, we've been at the forefront of this whole thing. And I will give you new information that I have learned this week in our little update. Bovada and Ignition had some problems during the Thanksgiving weekend. People wanted to play poker. People wanted to bet on sports. People wanted to play cash games and tournaments. They, they were all ready to fire on Bovada and Ignition, only to find not only was the site down for most people, but some connected to the site and were excited to see how much money that the site showed that they had in their accounts. Zero point zero. Right. Imagine you have like a lot of money on Bovada or Ignition. You connect and it says you have zero. That happened during the Thanksgiving weekend. So I'll tell you about all those issues and what you may have received in compensation without even knowing. And if you didn't receive it, how to get it. I have an update on another story we did in the past. Remember we talked about Maryland Live and that stupid $10 add-on fee where it's like a $400 tournament and if you gave 10 more dollars, you got like double the chips to where it would be really, really foolish not to. And this was kind of hidden in the fine print. And my real problem with this was the fact that uh, if people showed up without that $10, if they just bought in and didn't come with any cash, they couldn't do it. And also it's just not honest to say it's a $400 tournament. It's really 410 I don't know if it was exactly 400 or something around there. Something was really egregious to where you get double the chips for a $10 add-on. And I did a big segment on this show. This was brought to my attention by Alan Kessler. And while many criticized Kessler for this, I fully agreed with Kessler on that one and said that they just they just had to be straightforward and honest about it. If they want to do this stupid $10 add-on, it was for the dealers, by the way. But if they want to do this, then be honest about it. Don't Don't make this hidden. Don't sneak this through. 
just be honest or, or just make the whole thing $10 more and give that to the dealers. Well, whatever it is, don't make two forms of payment where the, the main registration and the uh, additional $10. Anyway, there's an update on that. Something has changed since then. And I will tell you what has happened. And I will tell you if Poker Fraud Alert had something to do with that. A British poker player named Calum Lodge has been convicted of something pretty bad. He's uh, Maybe he got inspiration from Mike Tyson. He is convicted of biting off another player's ear after losing to him in a bar poker game. I'm going to give you a Jew tip of the week. And this one you really should listen to because it will probably apply to you at some point in your life. And maybe it will even help you right now. It's something that helped me, something even I did not know about until this year. And once I learned about it, I, I actually thought, no, this couldn't be. I, like I, I was actually doubting the information I was given, but I actually utilized the information I was given, and I received a check in the mail for over $1,800, which I wouldn't have if I didn't know about this. And I'm talking about the built-in credit card insurance to get money back on a recent purchase which has been destroyed in some way. So if you have the heartbreak of buying something new and it gets destroyed in some way, you actually can get a full refund. And you're not paying anything extra to have this insurance. You probably already have it. In fact, you almost surely have it. I was skeptical. I was doubtful. But just this week, I deposited a check for over $1,800 that I got for something that got destroyed through no fault of my own. But it was destroyed after I received it in good condition. It actually it got destroyed at my house, and I admitted that. I didn't tell any lies. I was very straightforward about what really happened, and I got a check for over $1,800. You can too, and I will tell you how. Injured Arizona Cardinals player Josh Shaw was suspended for betting against his own football team? Yeah. Pretty dumb. But yes, an NFL player actually placed a bet against his own football team. I'll tell you that story and how he got caught. Clay Thompson, Golden State Warriors player, who is currently injured. Apparently, there is a Golden State Warriors team poker game, especially on airplanes when they fly across the country to go play their various basketball games. And even though I have to imagine that the level of play among the Golden State Warriors is not expert poker play, Clay Thompson admitted that he was a fish even in that game and lost a lot of money, and that was one of the factors as to why he was having a hard time holding on to his money earlier in his career. So I'll tell you about the Golden State Warriors team poker game and Clay Thompson's admission that he was a fish. Daniel Negreanu is hosting a poker tournament as a fundraiser for... Who do you think? It's a political candidate. Do you think it's, uh, you know it's not Trump. He detests Trump. But who do you think it might be? You think it might be Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg? Nope. He's doing it for Andrew Yang. So he's actually holding a fundraiser for Andrew Yang. I'll tell you about that. If you have gone to the bank to withdraw thousands of dollars in cash, and I don't mean $50,000 or $100,000, I mean $3,000, $5,000. If you've done that, there's a good chance that you have been interrogated 
by the bank teller as if you're a criminal. But often the interrogation is not a direct interrogation. Often it's a lot of intrusive questions about what you're going to do with the money, where you're going, why you're withdrawing it. And you may think to yourself, why are they asking this crap and what right do they have to know this? And are you compelled to answer these questions? So I will cover the answers to all of these in the segment about that. And this came to my attention because a woman named Lexi Sterner, who is like a part-time poker player, she tweeted about that today. And I said, oh yeah, that's been bothering me for a long time. She's totally right. And I'm going to talk about it on this show. Finally, I bet sports myself. Today, in fact, I'm a little disappointed. I had a winning day, but I'm disappointed. I didn't lose any bets today. I'm, I'm disappointed because I had about seven NBA picks today and I talked myself out of six of them and I only placed one and that one did win, but the other six also won. So I would have gone seven and oh today, which I've never done, but I talked myself out of six of the seven picks. Pretty bad, but that's not what that segment's about. This segment is about things not to do in sports betting. And it's, it's actually not going to be don't doubt yourself. You actually should doubt yourself. But I'm going to tell you some big things you should not do when sports betting. And it may save you some money if you're a sports better. Please, please listen to this segment if you're an amateur sports better. If you're a pro sports better and, and you win long term, and like if you're honest about this, don't, not, not that you tell people you win long term or delude yourself into thinking you win long term. If you really do win long term, this will not help you this segment. But if you're an amateur sports better, who seems to lose in the long run, especially if you lose a lot in the long run, you want to hear the segment. It's not going to turn you into a winner, but at least make you lose less. That's our agenda tonight. Free roll. That's it. Too late. 10 p.m. sharp. That's what it is right now. You cannot get in anymore, but there's always next week. And thank you again, Willie, for the $65. Got to know Willie over the years. He's a good guy. And we talk sometimes on, uh, on Twitter privately, and I've met him in person. He's uh, one of the few members of the forum who's uh, not shorter than I am. There's a, a few others, but not many. But uh, I think we're about the same height. And uh, Willie actually was really killing it in the main event some years ago. And then he ran bad and uh, unfortunately didn't cash. And I, I know how that can be. It's happened to me before, too. Not this year, but other years where I've been doing quite well, and then I end up not cashing, and it's very painful. That happened to Willie one year. But anyway, thank you, Willie, for the $65, and uh, I'm going to get Trader Ruski on, and then we will get started. Skype needs Trump to make it great again, because it's, it's not great anymore. It was once great, but it's not great anymore. What's happening, Josh? Trader Ruski, hello. Welcome to the show. How's it going? That's going okay. I want to, I want to ask you, since it's 10 p.m., we're starting uh, a little bit late tonight. Uh, how much energy do you have at the moment? I'm feeling good. Okay, great. You, you sound kind of energetic. That's why I asked. Um, yeah, no, I had a big Starbucks getting ready for the show. Oh, okay. I was just looking at my text to see if he texts me, and like a second later he texts me. Oh, wow. Well, what, it's, it's, I think you got like a, a disturbance in the force that I was about to text you. I've had that before where I, I think of somebody who hasn't texted me in a long time and then like minutes later they text me. It's really weird. I've, I've really had people text me like minutes after I thought of them for the first time in months. So, okay. Let's get going here. I'm going to tell you guys about my experience at the World Series of Poker Circuit. The World Series of Poker Circuit is, it's a tournament series where you get a ring if you win. 
And it's, it's really not that much different from other smaller tournament series, except it's associated with the World Series of Poker. And that the World Series of Poker keeps track of rings as well as bracelets. And I have to say, I, I've semi-bought into the hype to where when I see it's a circuit event, I'm more excited to go play it than if it's not one. Like, I, I really do want a World Series of Poker ring. And despite that, though, I, I, I'm not really a tournament player, and I don't go out of my way to play circuit events. So I usually only play one per year at most, and many years zero. So I've, I haven't played that many in my life. Most years I don't play them at all, but I found last year that the bike runs an 08 circuit event, a $400 buy-in event, which is a bit low for me, but it's it's a ring event, and I like 08 tournaments, and there aren't that many outside the World Series, so I make the trek down to the bike, even though I'm not very close to it, and the traffic's terrible. So last year I went there, and that was my first tournament that followed all the problems I was having. And I remember last year, I, I was kind of just okay enough to do it. Like, I I had to go out during the breaks and swish around the dry mouth rinse in my throat and spit it in the bushes. Like, I was having to do things like that. And a few times I kept feeling like I had to leave the room, but I, I talked myself out of it. Like, it, I, I wasn't quite mentally healthy last year when I played this, but it was the first tournament I played since all of that. It was in November. And uh, I actually did quite well. I was the chip leader at one point, and... Then I slipped some, and then I came back. The, the structure isn't very good, so you the, the levels are 30 minutes. They go up fairly quickly, so if you if you don't consistently keep winning there, you're, you're going to lose even if you started out well. But I, I hung in there. I do like the, the fact that the, there's a lot of fish in the event. There's a lot of people who don't know what they're doing in 08 in that event. So if you're like a, even a decent 08 player, you'll have a decent shot at winning a ring there. I'll be honest with you. So that's, that's another reason I like it. It's not like... Super tough competition. There's other good players there, but you're not. There's a lot of players who are not good. So I got down to the final ten last year, and they combined us to one table. The problem was they were only paying nine, which would made no sense because there were 91 entrants. So they should have at least paid ten. I've never seen before a tournament that pays fewer than 10 percent. Now it's almost 10 percent, but it's not 10 percent. Every other tournament I've seen in my life that if they're if if whatever they're going to pay. If 10, there's no even 10%, they just pay the next spot. So in this case, they should have paid 10, minimum 10. So I was disappointed that, <laughs> of all things, they only pay 9 when it should be 10, which I noticed when they posted the list of people, uh, the list of prizes, and this is long before I got to the money, and I said, wow, that would really suck if I finished 10th here. So uh, I came into the final 10 with average chips, which with that structure really gave me Quite a decent chance to win that ring. I'm not saying I was a favorite. I wasn't at all. But it's not like I was a super long shot to win it. And instead, I went out 10th. I remember two hands. I flopped a flush. And not even a terrible flush. Like a 10 high flush and a jack high flush. And both times I lost to a, so a higher flop flush. Which, yes, I know in Omaha is much easier to happen than in Hold'em. But it's still kind of crappy. I mean, to, uh, t- two times in like three hands that happened to me. And then I lost just every hand I played. And I was gone. So I, I was the bubble boy. So I returned this year to avenge that bubble finish. This year they got a similar field of 96 players. And this year they did the opposite regarding the prize pool. This year they decided they're going to pay 15 spots, which I'll tell you about shortly. There's a reason for that. So this year they're paying 15 spots, which I felt was actually too much because it just uh, – like the min cash was like $565 or something really lousy when you're paying 400 to buy in. So the min cash was a joke. I felt they shouldn't be paying more than 15% of the field, which 15 out of 96 is, but that's what they paid. 
I lasted till about the middle of the field, and I, I was crippled by a fish who uh, made a terrible call, a terrible call to a three-bet I made from the small blind. I had uh, ace-ace, king-ten with ace-king of hearts, and there was a late raise, and I three-bet out of the small. And for some reason, the guy in the big blind who was new to the table called two bets cold with some kind of trash hand like jack ten five three. And of all things, the flop comes jack ten eight with two hearts and then a ten of hearts on the turn, which is really weird because I have one of the tens also. So now I have uh, additional outs and I wasn't very happy about it, but I check called the turn and check folded the river and I was down to very few chips. And then I busted the next hand. So you know, that's the way it goes. Typical fast-moving tournament, and I was out. That was that. So I didn't fare very well at my one-circuit event of 2019, and I probably will not be playing another until this exact same circuit event late in 2020. I mainly concentrate on the regular World Series, but it would be nice to win a circuit ring. I got excited last year when I got down to the final 10 with average chips. I thought, cool. What if I what if what if what if I have a circuit ring? But I can't even get a freaking circuit cash. I, I haven't. I've played fewer than 10 circuit events in my life. I'm guessing maybe I've played seven in my life. So I might go for seven now. So it's not unheard of. It's not horrible. It's just I can't even cash at a circuit event no matter what. So that's <laughs> that's the story of my attempt to play circuit. Now, I, I did go into the 40-80 cash game after that, and I, I did pretty well in that game. That was a good game. The 40-80 cash at the bike is interesting because there's usually two games running – during like the evening hours and eventually it breaks down to one and then eventually it breaks down to zero. But I found that when the game is short, it's actually like fairly tough by 4080 standards. Like everybody in the game is either good or reasonable. Not always, but often. But when it's a full ring game, there's a number of fish in the game. Like it's very rare to have a full ring game without at least one outright fish and often two or three outright fish. And last night there were three players who I consider fish or semi-fish in that full ring 4080. And when I was in the must move at first, there was actually only one fish and then he got moved to the zero fish, which I wasn't very happy about. But then they, then that a few seats open. So they must move broke down and it was a full ring. I was in the full ring and that one had three fish in it. And then I left the game for a little bit and came back, I don't know, about 20 minutes later and uh, all the fish were gone and it was back down to a game of all reasonable players. But if it's a full ring, that 4080 at the bike is actually usually good. Where at Commerce, it's hit and miss. Commerce, yes, they have fish in their 4082, but I, I've also been in full ring 4080s at Commerce that suck. So the Commerce one's kind of hit and miss. And same with the 60 at Commerce. Like they're, they're, the 60 tends to be worse than the 40. 60 can often be like nine players who are all decent. It has fish too sometimes, but often not. The 40 usually has fish, but there are times at Commerce where it's not a good game. And at the bike, every time I've seen a full game running, it's got fish. You may say, well, why Why is that? Why is the, only the full game has the fish? Because the fish don't feel comfortable shorthanded, a lot of them. A lot of them want to play full ring, which is funny. They, they Some of these fish would do better playing shorthanded because they play too many hands. And the shorter the game gets, the more correct it is to play uh, hands that are, are not good. It's never correct to play trash hands, but uh, but just that's the way Hold'em works and really any form of poker works, that the shorter the game gets, the more hands you have to play. You can't just sit there waiting for premium hands, where with a full ring game, you can. So 
the funny thing is the fish actually feel uncomfortable shorthanded and will uh, will quit if the game starts to break down or break down shorthanded. So I just like last year, last year I won in cash after losing in the tournament and same thing this year. So I since the tournament buy-in's only $400, which is really nothing in the cash games I play, at least both last year and this year the trip down there was worth it. But there's something I learned and that is I'm just absolutely never going to go down to the bike again where I have to drive in the mid to late afternoon because the traffic is just horrendous. So last year it took me two and a half hours. And this year it I, I beat it. This year it took me about two hours, 45 minutes to get there. And I'm about 60 miles away. So that's horrendous. Like, can you imagine? That's like That's like taking a trip somewhere fairly far away. I mean, my average drive to Vegas is like four hours. So it took me two hours, 45 minutes to get to the bike. And I could have gotten to Vegas in in only about an hour, 15 minutes more. Going back was great because I went back in the middle of the night. But two hours, 45 minutes. And boy, was it frustrating. And I'm going to confess something else here. This was actually the very first tournament I ever played where I was under the influence of Xanax. Now, I don't take Xanax for fun, and I don't buy Xanax illegally. The Xanax I have was legally prescribed to me, so you guys who hate me out there are going to try to report me for uh, illegally obtaining Xanax. Don't bother. This is Xanax prescribed to me legally by a licensed physician. But I carry it with me sometimes just in case I get any kind of recurrence of the anxiety and depression I suffered last year. And usually it's for nothing that I'm carrying it because I've really gotten over most of that. But this time I felt I needed it because that traffic was so terrible. And the worst point was when I got off on the freeway. I got off from the freeway uh, in L.A. to try to get around the horrible traffic. And I ended up on this one street where I was just stuck. It was horrible gridlock and it just wouldn't move. And I just sat and sat and sat and just inched forward. And there was no way out of it. I was just trapped. And it was just so stressful. I was and the fact that I knew that time was ticking away, and I I intentionally came there late. I didn't want to play at the very beginning because it's a limit Omaha tournament. The first hour is meaningless, or mostly meaningless. But I didn't want to get there as late as I did. And I saw the time ticking away, so that was stressing me out. Just having my car just stuck where I can't move. It um, it was stressing me out in like when's this going to end? Like I wasn't scared of anything. I just was like, when's this ever going to end? I'm just stuck. And I started picturing, like, what if I'm stuck here for, like, two hours? Like, I started getting really, really stressed out. So I opened up my backpack and took out a Xanax, and I took it. And I wasn't that far from the bike at that point. So um, I actually didn't feel the effects of it until uh, just as I was getting there. But then uh, I started to feel the effects pretty quickly after that. And by the time I was playing the tournament, I was really feeling the effects. And I wondered, will Xanax actually help me to play better? Because I thought perhaps it will relax me. And perhaps uh, it will take out some of the stress of tournaments that can sometimes lead one to make the wrong decision. If you're feeling kind of just too stressed and too uh, intense about the whole thing. So I said, maybe this will help me. I also wondered, maybe it will make my game worse. Because maybe I won't have as much focus or as much drive in the game to uh, to play well as I would have if I weren't on it. 
So Trader Ruski, how do you think the Xanax affected me? You think it helped my game, hurt my game, or neither? I it might have hurt your game. I don't know if that's the drug you want to take to play. You're correct. It did hurt my game. Uh, I felt too relaxed. I felt too uh, like non-focused. I felt like I could just relax and not. Uh, it's hard to describe, but I, I just kind of felt like, like, hey, I'm just here, or whatever. Like, I just, I didn't have the usual focus. Like, uh, I actually find, at least for myself, it's better to have some tension during these tournaments because then I see everything better. I get a very a better feel for things. Like if the whole tournament just become, if I just become one with the tournament, I know that sounds like new age BS, but really, like if I if I really just think about that and my mind is on it, and I'm thinking very intensely about everything, that can actually help me as long as I don't overdo it. And here, this was the opposite. Here, I just felt too relaxed the whole way, and it it made it made it harder to think about the tournament and and harder to really be alert with everything going on. So I felt like, ah, I, I kind of wish I could lose the effects of this now, but I was stuck with it for, uh, now the good thing is it, it, it doesn't last very long. So it peaks at about an hour after you take it and then it, then it goes down and then it really goes down. And within a few hours, you don't even notice you took it anymore. So I'm, I'm not going to do that again, though. I'm not going to take Xanax before a tournament. But the reason I took it was because I didn't want to get there and feel like I'll tilt it from the traffic and play badly for that reason. But still, if, if the same thing were to happen again, Unless I felt I really needed it, I would not take a Xanax before playing poker. So that uh, it was a worthy experiment, I guess, though. It was only a $400 buy-in tournament. And it's not like it, it really made me play awful. It's just I was uh, not as focused on the whole thing as I could have been if I didn't take the Xanax. By the time I played cash, uh, it was, I don't know if it was fully out of my system, but as far as how I felt, it felt as if I wasn't on it anymore. Because it had been several hours. So that the cash wasn't a problem. In the cash game, I was totally myself. Okay, so uh, anyway, I wish they had more 08 tournaments. Or even any kind of non-PLO Omaha tournaments. So a big O tournament, uh, PLO 8, 08, any of those I'd like to see. But there aren't that many. And sometimes when they do have them, they're too small. Like, I'm not going to play a $125 buy-in. So uh, there just aren't many opportunities to do this. The LA Poker Classic tends to have one, so I'll probably do that in February. That one I also got very close last year. This, at least this time I didn't get close. This time I just, <laughs> I just uh, bricked it. Not a terrible brick, like right in the middle of the field. I was out. James Woods was at my table. I asked him why is he not on Twitter anymore. And he told me that uh, there's too much craziness in the world that he decided to get away from the craziness and that Twitter was too stressful. Which is interesting because he, he wrote a lot of controversial tweets. Now, I agreed with a lot of them, actually, but he wrote a lot of controversial tweets, a lot of political tweets. He's, a, he's a, one of the rare conservatives out of Hollywood. He's very conservative. And he got a lot of people angry with his tweets. So it's interesting that he was creating a lot of the controversy – that he was experiencing on Twitter, but at some point he just decided he didn't want to deal with it anymore. He, he just he said there's, there's too much craziness in the world, and a lot of the it's on Twitter, and I don't want part of it anymore. That's what he said. So he's he said he just stopped. I don't know. If, let me see if he deleted his Twitter. I know I haven't seen anything from him in a long time. That's why I asked him about it. I played with him before. 
I got to know him a little bit. Like he would say hi to me when he see me around commerce and stuff like that. So I felt comfortable asking him about this. Yeah, he hasn't tweeted since April 19th. Uh, he, he plays poker a lot these days. Like I see him a lot playing cash. And after he busted the tournament, he was playing cash at the bike. I see him in commerce playing cash. He plays a lot of tournaments. And this guy has a lot of money. He doesn't need the money that he would win from any of these tournaments. Like if he got first place in this tournament, it would be 10 k That's nothing to him. So he, he does this for the love of poker. But he really plays a lot of poker these days. And I'll say this. He doesn't act arrogant. He doesn't act, oh, I'm a celebrity. People should kiss my ass. He's the opposite of this. He's very nice and soft-spoken. He's very non-confrontational. He doesn't bring up politics. Uh, like I'll hear him discuss politics with people he knows are on the same side as him. But he doesn't get in confrontations about politics at the table. He, he doesn't bring it up on purpose because he doesn't want that happening while he's playing poker. He doesn't want to argue with people there. And uh, and people come up to him and want to take pictures with him or have him sign autographs, and he always does it. He, ne- he never says no, never says I'm too busy, never ignores them. He's like one of, one of these very accessible celebrities. And if you've ever played with him, you'd see that. And if you didn't know he was famous, you'd really just think he's a, just another – old guy at the table. <laughs> That's what you would think. There's there's no sense of arrogance from him at all. So I I've, I've I've thought highly of James Woods when I've played poker with him. So he was at my table and he busted before I did. He was playing a lot of hands, but then he actually s- said out loud that he plays a lot of hands in tournaments. He says, "I just played a hand I would never play in cash." Which I don't really agree with. I don't think you should be playing more hands like that in tournaments. I understand in certain spots where you may have to do a Hail Mary, like if you see a lot of people coming in and you have kind of a trash hand, you may just want to enter at this point if you're getting low because then if you win the hand, you'll you'll get a lot of chips back and be back in it. So I understand something like that, but not just like, I don't think it's correct in these tournaments to just play way too many hands because in, in 08, you can really get in trouble with second best hands. You just... There's so many ways to make second best hands in 08 that you've got to be very careful about not getting to that spot. Especially because it's a high-low game, so you never know if the person's betting has the high or the low. So it's then you get tempted to call down, well, if he's only got the high because I have the second best low or the third best low, and then you end up he's got both. <laughs> There's a lot of different ways that you get screwed in that game if you're trying to play trash hands pre-flop. So that's, that's my opinion about that. And I've done pretty well in these 08 tournaments and all forms of Omaha tournaments since I started playing them three years ago, as you've seen from my uh, World Series results. So I'm not a longtime veteran of that game, but I've, I've played enough of it and played enough of these tournaments now that I feel I have a pretty good idea of what you should do and what you should not do. Okay, let's talk about a complaint about the circuit from Maurice Hawkins, because uh, he is a prolific circuit player and of all people you would think wouldn't complain about the World Series of Poker Circuit it would be Maurice because he's I think won the highest number of rings of of anybody I don't think anyone's won more than him he has 13 but he had an interview with Poker News where he had a lot of complaints about the recent WSOP circuit so here is what he said, and you'll notice some of these complaints actually echo what 
has been said recently about the World Series of Poker Europe and the World Series of Poker in general and about tournaments in general. There's been a, a big backlash recently against late registration, like very late registration, and unlimited rebuys, which is funny because I've been complaining about this for many years and I've had so many people dismissing me and telling me I'm wrong about this stuff. And now now it's become fashionable for everyone to bitch about this stuff. But okay, whatever works. Like if it gets change made, I'll be happy. So Maurice Hawkins, who he's had a lot of issues. Let's just say that. He's had a lot of issues. He's had a lot of controversies with various players that he's dealt with where it seems like there's always some story about him owing money or not keeping up to some deal. There's been a number of these over the years, and we've covered them on other shows. That's not going to be the topic here, just just throwing that out there as I begin this segment. But this segment is actually about just his comments about the circuit and how I feel about them, not about him personally. But I, I didn't want to not mention that. So even though he has 13 rings... 13 times he's won a World Series of Poker Circuit event. He has been complaining about what's been happening to the circuit, which has been similar to what's happened to other tournaments around the world, including the World Series of Poker Europe and the World Series itself and the World Poker Tour. He said, I think the biggest concern with many people who are playing the circuit, which is paying 15% of the field, is that you have the top, you have to get in the top percentile to actually min cash or double your money on the circuit right now. Now let's go back to the event I just played. Right. It was more than 15%. 15 out of 96 spots were paid, and I told you the the bottom cash was pathetic. So, yes, I agree with him. Now I think it was to the other extreme last year, before they started doing this, where they were paying actually less than 10% of the field, and I got screwed as the bubble boy. But this year they were paying 15% of the field, And apparently that's just standard on the circuit now. That's why they changed it. I didn't know that's why they changed it until I read this article. So Maurice said, basically you have to get the top 7% to double your money. Well, while that may not be problematic to people who are playing it, the reason those numbers are going down is because the likelihood of doubling your money is slimmer. He's talking about the numbers of people playing. And basically Maurice is saying... This is making it too hard to continue playing the circuit consistently because you, because they're paying too many spots, now to even double your money, you have to get really, really far, and that's very hard to do because variance is going to crush you even if you're a great player. So he's saying that uh, these extra spots they're paying, which are now, of course, at the expense of the upper spots, is a bad thing. And that, uh, and what the reason you may say, well, okay, but what about these same people? They may have, they may get some kind of min cash instead of otherwise bubbling it. Like, think about me last year. Last year I got zero. Where had they been paying 15% of the field, I would have walked away with something. But what he's trying to say here is that it, it really is harder to get in the upper 7% there because the competition's tougher and you just have to get a lot luckier. It's like, even all things being equal, twice as hard to make it to the upper, the top 7% versus the top 15%. But it's actually more than twice as hard. So he's saying that 
he doesn't like the fact that when you do get up there, that you're not getting as much money as you were before. That if they just made it the top 10% and then paid double the buy-in, which they used to, that that's a much better situation for people. Then he went on to say that uh, the allure of poker was when the top prize was life-changing. It's just not working for a player to travel for a week when you're not even doubling your money when you mint cash. With overhead, it's a negative, a negative equitable situation for you. I feel like it needs to be said. I know it probably can't be changed this year, but they need to get back to what made poker beautiful. Then he's also frustrated about late registration. The other problem is that they're allowing people to buy into the 12th and 13th level. You have people buying in late in tournaments where they don't have, they didn't have the skill that it takes to build a stack, sustain a stack, and be in the tournament. Yes, that's I've been saying that forever. I've been saying forever the biggest problem with late, late registration is that you're buying in and skipping possibly running bad up to that point. You're actually automatically surviving by buying in very late. So it's one thing to buy in a little bit late, but if you buy in super late, like he's saying, like in some cases, the 12th or 13th level, then yes, you're you're jumping in short stacked, but you're also guaranteed to have gotten this far. So if 70% of the field is busted by that point, you've already outlasted 70% of the field without lifting a finger. With zero poker skill, you can last outlast 70% of the field if you can still buy in at that point. Then you're short stacked, and then all you have to do is get lucky. The blinds are so big compared to your stack, well, now you just... There's no skill in, involved to double up. You just – well, there's a little bit of skill, but I mean not much. You just look for a reasonable spot to try to double up. If you don't, okay, you leave. If you do, okay, now you may be back to average or close to average, and now you're viable again. So he's saying that the whole skill that's required to build a stack, to hold a stack, to not shoot off your chips earlier and the middle stages of the tournament, that's just all wiped away because you can come in so late and just try to double up and or, or not. So I think that whole part has been removed from the tournament for those that are entering late, and I agree. I've, I've complained about this for a long time. That as long as you're okay with entering that late and lasting like two hands, then that's actually not a bad strategy. So if you're not playing these tournaments for fun, if you're, not, you're more playing them just to get as far as you can, especially if you don't want to waste the whole day playing just to run bad kind of in the late, the middle-late stages and bust without cashing anyway... If you just want to come in late, try to double up and then be right in it and be close to cashing and know that you'll be out if you don't, yeah. He said the purity of the game is going away because of these late entries. It's causing a dynamic where a poker tournament isn't really about poker. It's more flipping and blackjack. It's gambling. Yeah. I've said this for years. I've said this for years. And I had people telling me over and over, well, no, Druff, it's fine. These people are, they're missing playing with all the fish. Or why don't you do it if you think it's so unfair? The option's open to you too. Why why not let people register late? It's a disadvantage for them. They're coming in with a short stack and they, they didn't get all the money of the fish who already busted. And I said, yes, but they've got something huge in that they are skipping a large percentage of the field which already busted. They skipped any potential run bad they could have had earlier in the tournament. They said, well, then why don't you do it? And I said, because I'm playing the tournaments because I enjoy them because I don't play that many every year and I don't want to do that. But if I was playing a full schedule of tournaments all year, I probably would do that. Why waste a whole day when you can skip past that whole thing? People can actually register day two now in a lot of tournaments. 
So he's right. I've been saying this forever. Now, now it's becoming fashionable for everyone to say, "Oh yeah, late registration is so bad." Well, who's been saying this this whole time? Then he also doesn't like reentries. He says, "My ideal situation is that there should be a maximum of one reentry. It should last for the first six or seven levels." That's also been a big thing lately. People saying that unlimited reentries or multiple reentries are bad. It's just rewarding those with deep pockets who could just fire, 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 fire. It's not about maintaining stacks anymore. It's just, or it's not about uh, preserving chips. It's just about firing like a madman if you've got the bankroll to do it and hoping one of them catches. Yeah, I've been saying that too. He said that they really need to change this and, and all these other things and then it'll restore the purity of the World Series of Poker Circuit. He said, back in the day, you had less chips and it was more emphasis on game theory. When to call with a draw, when to raise a draw, when to get it in, when not to get it in, how much of a percentage of your stack you're going to call off. Are you going to flip at this position in a tournament because it's early, mid-stage, or late? All that game theory is going out the window with these mass rebuys and mass late registrations. It's infringing on the purity of the game. Yeah, it is. It really is. He said, we're losing a lot of these mid-range players who don't win a lot. They win here or there. They're blowing their bankrolls in two stops. While this is no, while that's nobody's problems but theirs, allowing them to shoot off five, six bullets every tournament they play, they have the ideology that's how you play poker. It's going to kill their bankroll and kill the numbers in the long run. I want those people to sustain some sort of lifestyle that they can have some longevity in poker. So what he's saying here is for the players who don't win in the long run, they kind of slowly lose over time. But if you allow them to fire... 10 buy-ins into a tournament, it's like they've played 10 tournaments at once and they're going to go broke faster or lose too much money faster where they don't want to continue anymore and they'll quit. So he's saying before, if for someone who's kind of a small long-term loser in poker, or at poker tournaments at least, that this would occur over a long period of time, maybe so long that they won't even notice it. They won't even keep track well enough to see that they're long-term losers because they're not losing that much. But if they're shooting off 10 buy-ins and not cashing, then they may say, screw it, I'm just not coming back. I've wasted too much money in this one tournament. He said he's watched many players fall by the wayside. So the, the turnover period on players I used to notice back in the day, I'd say was in one circuit year, you'd see a mid-level grinder come in, have some success, live off that success for about a year, year and a half, then he'll realize maybe he's not as profitable as he thought he was. Now those guys are coming and firing multiple bullets, and that guy will last two or three stops, which is a quarter of the year. That's why the numbers are going down. He also thinks that there are too many World Series of Poker Circuit events now. So when I started playing poker to get a bracelet was a big thing. Now there's so many different ways and events to get bracelets has been watered down. I don't think there's much allure in it anymore because you can almost buy rings or bracelets. And he's referring to the fact that last summer there were 90 bracelets given away at the World Series of Poker, by far an all-time high. And then there's uh, usually more than 12 rings given per stop, but more than 30 stops per year, so there's more than 360 rings given out per year. So he's saying that at this point, what does it really mean to win a bracelet or a ring given how many are given each year? And, okay, I don't agree with all of that. It is true that the bracelet has been watered down, 
And I'm proud that I won my bracelet back in the days before it was. But it is true a, a recent bracelet is somewhat watered down. Not because they've added events so much, but because of all these late registration things and unlimited rebuys. And as he said, there, there are ways – I wouldn't say you can directly buy rings or bracelets, but it's it's a lot easier with a very deep bankroll to just keep firing till you catch fire and, and win one of these. And as far as the number of events, the reason I don't see that as so much of a problem – is that it makes it just more accessible for people to play. So if you're going to have a lot of events, as long as there's enough variety of where the events are and the events in each venue. Now, I I do think that they should cut down on the same event over and over, especially of these circuit events, that if you want to have a lot of events because you want to give variety, such as the 08 event I just played. Like, have have more variety of events, that's fine. And at the World Series of Poker, there is a lot of variety. You have to give them that. Like, at the World Series of Poker, there's a lot of tournaments for things that normally do not run anywhere, or especially things that do not run at any kind of limit over over $1,000. Like, think of all the tournaments for over $1,000 buy-in at the World Series of Poker, that that's the only place you can find them. So many different varieties of poker that you cannot find anywhere for that type of buy-in. And it's at the World Series. So at least with the 90 bracelets they give away, a lot of them are because of the various the, the varied events that they provide people to play. And I think that's a good thing. So there I don't think the bracelet's getting watered down. Because if you're going to use that logic, you say, okay, what about in 100 years? Let's say the World Series of Poker is here for another 100 years. Well, even if you stick to the number of bracelets they were giving out, say, 10 years ago, if you go 100 years, there's going to be a whole lot of bracelets given out. There will be uh, you know, close to 10,000 bracelets given out. Not 10,000, but more than 5,000. So just the more years they will pass, the more bracelets will be given out. So I wouldn't say that waters them down. What, what, I, what I would say waters them down, number one, the cheap buy-in events. I don't like them giving bracelets out for $365 buy-in events. Even if it's a huge field, it's just... I don't think that's what the World Series of Poker should be about. I don't think it should be a, like a budget thing that people can enter. I think it's something where you have to play the game at a high enough level to where you're willing to enter for a buy-in that's at least four figures. I don't like any of these sub-four-figure bracelets, especially with inflation. And I also don't like all the late registration and day two registration they allow. That's another problem, as he said. So I guess we kind of partially agree on this. He said, I don't feel like the circuit gets enough love during the World Series of Poker. The World Series of Poker circuit is part of the World Series. It's a brand. You have the bracelets, then you have the circuit rings, but at the World Series, they never talk about the circuit. They should promote the circuit. I don't feel they do it at all. And if they want their numbers to grow, they need to do better publicity at their biggest event. They need to promote the U.S. and international circuits more. He's actually correct about that. A lot of people don't know the circuit exists. A lot of people I mentioned on playing a WSOP circuit event. What? What do you mean? The World Series of Poker Circuit. I'm trying to win a ring. What? A ring? What's that? Like I have to explain it to him. Well, it's like a bracelet except this is not the main World Series and it's not the World Series of Poker Europe. These are a smaller series that the World Series of Poker uh, is associated with. They don't run it directly, but uh, venues 
agree to be World Series of Poker Circuit locations, and they run the tournament. And if you win the tournament, you get a World Series of Poker Circuit ring. And he's saying that they don't promote it enough. Well, I'll tell you the reason they don't promote it enough, and that's because the World Series of Poker is basically licensing out the brand. Like this one at the bike that I just played. There is no Caesars staff running this World Series of Poker Circuit event. It's all run by people at the bike. So they're just licensing out the World Series of Poker Circuit brand for this tournament series that they have at the bike. That's what it is. So the World Series of Poker doesn't really feel like they want to promote this because they're not getting enough out of it. But I see his point that if they're going to license out the World Series of Poker Circuit, then they should promote it because it is part of the brand. And what's good for them is for people to just get excited about anything World Series of Poker. So, for example, people who play ring events, whether they win a ring or not, that they think, okay, cool, now I want to go to the regular World Series and play there. I want to try for a bracelet now. Even if they don't have a ring. Let's say they get uh, fourth place. They go, okay, well, I got fourth place trying to get a ring. Maybe I can have the same luck going for a bracelet or even better. So they should promote it. Anything that kind of just puts more under the World Series of Poker umbrella, even if they don't directly make that much money from the circuit, he's right. They should promote it, but I think they just don't want to waste time or effort or resources promoting something which is technically not theirs. They just license out. They feel like there's no benefit because they they get their flat fee, I assume. I, I don't know the exact detail, but I assume there's some sort of flat fee which the venues pay the World Series to call it a circuit event and to buy the rings they give out or what else, whatever else. I don't think the World Series of Poker makes money if the circuit stop does well. I think they've already made their money before the stop even begins. And even if there is some sort of incentive given to them, I don't think it's much. Now, Maurice Hawkins did say that he's not quitting the circuit, that he still likes it, he's still going to play, and that uh, especially he wants to keep ahead of others who are behind him in the race to have the most rings. But he thinks these are suggestions which will help improve it. I agree with almost all of them, but I don't think most of these are going to be taken to heart except maybe if there's that general change because of the backlash against the rebuys and the late entries and all that stuff. So we'll see. The late registration, in case you're wondering, was four hours, which is eight levels for this one I just played, which I didn't feel was too late. In fact, I'm glad it was because I wouldn't have made it otherwise. I came in like three hours and 15 minutes in, thanks to the traffic. But... A lot of these other circuit events, as he said, you can enter the 12th level, the 13th level, and it's it's not good. I think four hours is fine. Now, this one, of course, since the structure moved pretty fast, they didn't want to make it much later than four hours. That's really what it should be in all these events. Ari Engel, who listens to this show, a very, very prolific tournament player, told me that he feels that the late registration is the least big deal where there's not that much of the field gone yet when it ends. He said you shouldn't be looking at it at the amount of time you have. You should be looking at it and how much of the field is gone when late registration ends. And he, he used as an example the main event of the World Series of Poker that like 60% of the players or more make day two. I think now it's like 
66% or something. A lot of people make day two now. So he's saying even though you can register on day two on that one, that's not doing a whole lot for you other than skipping a day because you've only lost a third of the field. And I, I understand his point there. So you should more look at what percentage of the field is gone when late reg closes rather than how long it's been. But I have seen World Series of Poker events where 70% or more of the field is out by the time you can still late register at the very end, and that's dreadful. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is our number. So I'm going to give you guys an update on the Ray Davis criminal case. As I told you, every time we find out something new, I'm going to let you know. As we've covered before on this show, Ray Davis is charged with uh, a few different counts related to allegedly uh, soliciting sex from two different minors. The two different minors were associated with each other. It wasn't two separate incidents, but uh, um, well, there were two separate incidents, but involving both girls, I guess, but uh, both minors and one involved supposedly him offering to pay for oral sex and the other involving paying them to watch them take a shower. The age of consent in Nevada is 16. So anything sexual involving someone 16 or over is legal in Nevada, even if you're much older than 16. For example, a 50-year-old can have sex with a 16-year-old in Nevada and be open and honest about it and could not be charged with any crime because the age of consent is 16 there. But below 16, then it is a crime unless you're like within, I think if you're between 14 and 18, then you actually can have sex with someone who's 14 or 15 in Nevada. And then there's a separate crime for having sex with someone under 14, which is illegal in all circumstances. And is a, it's, it's more is considered a much more serious offense. And a lot of states separate this where they have what's illegal as far as having sex with a minor and then what is a more serious charge of having any kind of sexual relation with a younger minor. And so that's what they're talking about there in Nevada with the under 14. And Ray Davis actually was accused of having of sex assault on a minor. And by the way, this none of this was considered, I know it says sex assault, but as I said last week, sexual assault is actually a very broad term. And he is not accused of physically forcing himself upon anybody. There's no accusation of that. And there's no reason to believe that occurred. But they call it sex assault because a minor can't consent by law. They're said not to be old enough to be able to consent, so it's considered sex assault, even if it's not forcible. Anyway, he was accused of sex assault on a minor under 16 and a minor under 14. And for some reason, I don't know why, the one, the charge involving the one under 16 just kind of vanished. There was a case, and then it got transferred over to district court, which is a new case number. And the new case, which is the one that's currently ongoing, and he's currently sitting in jail waiting for a trial in February... That one no longer has the one for the minor under 16. It it only mentions the minor under 14. Now, I saw some people were asking on the forum, well, minor under 14, that could mean any age. How do you know that the girl wasn't like eight years old? 
Well, from what I can see and the information I was given, the alleged incident occurred when the one, the younger one was, was like 13. So, uh, the one who was quote under 16 is actually now an adult. This, this was five years ago. So I, I guess they're both adults now, but the one who was, uh, quote under 16 actually tried to get a job according to Ray Davis and, and one of his friends at the real grounder, real grinders lo- uh, lounge, which Ray Davis runs. And Ray Davis refused it. This is supposedly in 2018. She asked for a job there and, and he wouldn't let her. And she was 19 at the time. The younger of the two was 13 from what I've been told, which if true is, is pretty bad. I'm not defending this in any way, but I will say that, uh, a 13-year-old and someone like an 8-year-old is a world of difference. It's a, it's a gigantic difference. I find one much, much, much more serious than the other. Uh, I, I'm i going to refrain from commenting on whether he's guilty of any of this because I don't know. You know, We'll have to see what comes out in court, and then we'll make our decision. You know, we, even if he's not convicted, we will, you know, from the information that comes out, whatever we can see, then we can all come to our own conclusion as to whether Ray Davis really did this or not. If he really did the things that they are accusing him of, then that's very bad. And uh, there's no excuse for any of that. And that uh, I, I want everyone to understand that, that I'm not making excuses or saying he's not guilty. I'm not saying any of that. But uh, anyway, the new information, all the stuff I'm saying right now, we've said before, the new information on this, and this has only been reported on Poker Fraud Alert. So if you want to see updates of the case in the Flying Stupidity Forum, there is a thread about Ray Davis, and there's more information there than anywhere else you'll find on the web about this, I guarantee you. The thread's called Raymond Davis of Real Grinders Arrested for Sexual Assault on Minor. But here's what I, I posted. And I guarantee you I'm the only one who's posted this, at least as of the date I posted it on November 30th. I got a hold of some records related to his April 2019 arrest. What happened, and this is one of the weird things about the case that still nobody understands, is that the incidents allegedly occurred in 2014 and were reported in 2016. And an arrest warrant was issued for Ray Davis in September 2016, and two and a half years passed without him being arrested, which, given the seriousness of these charges, is mind-boggling. And the only reason that arrest occurred at all in April 2019 was because he happened to be the subject of a traffic stop, and they ran his license, as they always do for anybody they stop, and they saw that there was an arrest warrant for him, and they, they brought him in. But had he not been the subject of this traffic stop, which just happened to be a random traffic stop. It wasn't aimed at him. It just, he got pulled over by the cops for some traffic violation. Had that not occurred, he still wouldn't be arrested. So this this really seems like something slipped through the cracks. This really looks like incompetence to me on the part of the police, and they won't comment on it. It really looks like they screwed up. But anyway, I have some information related to his April 2019 arrest that I didn't have last week. So last week, I mentioned that Ray Davis is also accused of having various aliases that were all named Ray Davis 
that he was committing other crimes under over time in, in different states. And that's part of the reason they upped his bail to $500,000. And I was saying last week, this is preposterous. Why would Ray Davis make Ray Davis aliases? <laughs> like, who would ever do that? If, if you're going to make aliases to be able to commit crimes or any other reason to hide from who you were, you wouldn't use the same name. That would be the dumbest thing ever. So I was thinking, I don't, I was saying, what, what is the DA even thinking making this accusation and how can the judge take this seriously? I, I thought this is insane. But this case has been so weird, it was actually believable maybe they're making that accusation. Well, it turned out whoever told me this was incorrect because that's not what's going on. He is accused of having five different aliases, and I can tell you what those aliases are because I now have the record on this, which nobody else has, by the way. Or at least nobody's posting it anywhere. But there are uh, five different aliases he's accused of having, and they knew about this back in April. And I'll tell you why I know this for sure in a second. And they were not named Ray Davis. And so I'm going to read something to you, and then I'm going to give you my analysis as to whether or not he really was using these aliases. So I have a report related to, it's a record actually, related to his April 2019 arrest, the traffic stop. It actually had a lot of information in it, including his social security number. So I have his social security number, not that I wanted or I'm going to use it, but I I now have it. Uh, It had his Nevada driver's license number. And it even had the social security numbers of all the aliases, which of course are fake if they're aliases, but still, they were there too. So I posted this on Poker Fraud Alert, but I did redact any social security number, whether real or fake, and his driver's license number. All that is blocked out there because that's none of anybody's business to see. I didn't want to dox Ray Davis and post uh, his personal information that could uh, be used to harm him. And I would do this for anybody. I'm not. I'm not going to post someone's uh, social on my site. It's, it's, I don't think that's legal to do. So I blacked that stuff out. But other than that, I left it as is, and you can see it. It's on uh, page seven of that thread. And the date of this record was April 26, 2019, and it says Raymond Tyrone Davis. Uh, it says sex male, race black, uh, eyes brown, height 5'11", weight 190. The funniest thing is hair XXX. <laughs> <laughs> That's because he's bald. That just says hair XXX. <laughs> and first I'm thinking, what does XXX mean? He has like X-rated hair? I go, oh, okay, he's bald. Uh, it says... Sex assault. This subject is on Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department electronic monitoring program. Subject is restricted from having alcohol, any type of weapons or drugs. If subject is contacted, please contact supervising officer. Additional conditions. No contact with victim and any minor under 18 years old. Charge sexual assault against child under 14. Okay, so this this is what uh, it said upon his release. After his April 2019 arrest. Basically, this is information in the system. If, if the police ever come in contact with him saying, it's okay, it's okay, don't arrest him. We've already done so. And he's actually on electronic monitoring right now. 
and he can't be around any minors under 18. He can't contact the victim, the alleged victim, and he can't have weapons or drugs, and he can't drink alcohol. So if you see any of this stuff, arrest him. Otherwise, don't. Otherwise, he's allowed to be out. And he's being electronically monitored by the Las Vegas police. That's basically what that says. He mentions his date of birth is March 24th, 1967. Now, this is important for later. And that I did leave up there. So if we scroll down, not scroll down, it's in the, it's, it's all one, one page, this report. You'll see it, the screenshot I posted. But you'll see down further in this picture I posted of this report, there are five names listed for his alleged aliases. The first one is Davy Davis. <laughs> he must have not felt very creative that day. Let's see, my name's Ray Davis. Who, who am I going to be? Oh, Davy Davis, that's good. It's both, they're both kind of like Davis. So he's Davy Davis. Greg Johnson, another very creative one. Now he gets a little bit better. David Prince. So you've got the David from, you know, Davis kind of becomes David, and then Prince, I don't know what that's from. Then we have David Robbins and Jack Robertson. So it's kind of funny how, except for Greg Johnson, which is really just out of the blue, all of them are related in some way. Dave, Davy Davis is obvious, but then from there it goes to David Prince. So Davy becomes David, and then Prince just, I don't know where that comes from. Then the David remains and becomes David Robbins, and then the Robbins becomes Robertson, but turns into the name Jack. So those are the five accused aliases. Uh, from what I can tell, he's not accused of any kind of sex crimes under these aliases, but supposedly he is accused of committing some kind of crimes in the past under these aliases. I don't know what they are. But here's what does stick out to me from, from looking at these aliases and looking at the information on Ray Davis. The dates of birth for these five aliases are March 25th, 1967, March 15th, 1968, March 24th, 1968, March 25th, 1968, March 24th, 1969. Now, what is Ray Davis's real birth date? March 24th, 1967. Hmm. That is incredibly close to all five of these fake birth dates. So that would make me think these are probably aliases that he has used. Now you may say, well, wouldn't that be like 100%? No, because we don't know where they got these five names. Like they could have just fished for any suspected aliases of anyone who committed crimes that were near Ray Davis's real birth date. That may be how they found it. I'm not saying that's what they did. I'm saying that there's the, that's the small chance that it could it, – maybe it's not him. Or maybe a few of these are his and the others were somebody else's alias that just happened to pick the same uh, or similar birth date. None of these are the exact same, but they're all very close to his actual birth date in some way. Three of them, the day of his birthday is within one day of his birthday, March 24th to 25th. So four of the five are described that way, and then the only one that's not that is still fairly close, March 15th. And they're all born 67 through 69, and he's born in 67. And something that would make it really seem like these were his 
is that people typically don't lie very far from the truth. So when someone makes something up, they often will take a fact and morph it a little bit. And the reason they do this is because it's easier to both remember the lie and sound convincing as you tell it. Uh, So usually, and, and also when someone is looking to put fake information up, they rarely actually duplicate something completely of what really describes them. So notice that none of his aliases have his exact birth date. There's one that's one day off. There's one that's one year off, but there's none that are his exact same birth date. And none of them are actually named uh, Raymond. There's Davy, Greg, David, David, and Jack. There is Davy Davis, but uh, aside from that, the rest of them have a different last name. Uh, it, it's the reason that if a phony name is created by someone, it's very unlikely the first name will be the same as their real first name. It's just human nature not to do that. But it is human nature to pick something fairly close. Not always, but but often. And this is about aliases. This is about birth dates. This is about uh, fake socials. This is about uh, when people just tell lies in general. So often you look at a lie someone's telling and then you'll find... When you find out the truth, there's some grain of truth it was based upon and then greatly morphed or exaggerated or changed around. If someone asked me, do you think these were Ray's five aliases? Were these really him? I would say yes. If they asked me, are you certain of that? I would say no. But I think that's probably true. I do not know what he's accused of doing under these five aliases. This could have been something as simple as him using the aliases to avoid any past criminal behavior of his from being found by employers or whoever else. Sometimes people make aliases not to commit more crimes, but to cover up discovery of previous crimes when some kind of background check is being done. So here's a second thing that I have that might shed some light. It's an evaluation regarding the bail. Remember, the bail in this case is very weird, where it was initially set at $25,000 and then upped to $500,000 after he had an outburst in court and supposedly accused the judge and the DA of trying to screw him on purpose and not being fair to him. Basically, he was accusing them of rigging the court case to just make sure they get a conviction and not giving him due process. So after that outburst, and he was also representing himself, they upped the bail from 25000 to 500000 which to me still seems like very much excessive bail, given what he's accused of. Here's what was written in April when they set the $25,000 bail, which he did post. He, he's in jail now because he can't afford the 500000 bail. But at the time, he, he was able to get out on bail on the $25,000 bail. So here's, here was the assessment at the time in April. While Clark County now engages in a risk assessment process to determine bail eligibility, oftentimes details of a defendant's criminal history are often too neglected. Even with the standards in the risk assessment defendant was, was elevated to a moderate risk. The statutory scheme in place does not limit this court to risk, a risk assessment tool. Herein, the state provides a full preview of the defendant's criminal cases, AKAs, and bench warrants. This information was not contained in the risk assessment. So they're, they're just basically saying here that uh, they're considering everything 
before setting his bail. Raymond Tyrone Davis has used the names Davey Davis, Greg Johnson, Jack Robertson, David Robinson, David Prince. He's used six different social security numbers and five different dates of birth. Beginning his criminal conduct in 1986, his criminal records are from the states of Wisconsin, California, Washington, Nevada, and are listed as follows. And I, I unfortunately don't have the rest, so I can't go on with what the crimes are. I, I don't have that piece. I wish I did. Anyway, what does that tell us? Well, what this tells us is that they knew all this back in April. See, supposedly the justification to up his bail to 500K was that, oh, he has so many different aliases and uh, you, know, you have to watch out for him. He could be a, fl- a flight risk since he's changing his identity so much and maybe he's been committing crimes under different names and this makes the whole thing much more serious than just the crime by itself. And that would all make sense, but they knew all of this in April when they said it for 25K. So I'm still not understanding what changed between April and October when they changed his bail by a factor of 20. It went from 25K to 500K. I still don't understand what changed aside from the outburst he had in court. And what's weird about the outburst he had in court was that he was not hit with any contempt charge. So it wasn't bad enough to charge him with contempt of court, but it was bad enough to up the the bail from 25K to 500K. And supposedly they were stating that the reason they did it is because of the aliases, but they knew about the aliases in April because I have a document right in front of me from April 26th stating these aliases. <laughs> so we know they did. We know they knew it then. So if, if these aliases were the reason for the high bail, then why didn't they set 500K back in April? So the whole thing is very strange still. The whole thing is very strange where they took two and a half years to arrest him. I think he just slipped through the cracks. He wasn't hiding. He was very public where he was. So it wasn't because he was hiding from them. And then the, the bail increase really does seem like it was just punitive. It just looks like he pissed everybody off. That's... The best that I can tell. But against him here is it does look like he did have those aliases. So those are the updates, is that the increased bail looks like it was not from any new circumstance that was unearthed then, despite what it seems like they're saying. But at the same time, the alias thing, which I kind of laughed at last week, is no laughing matter anymore. It looks like it's probably true. And I wish I knew more about what was supposedly done under the aliases. Maybe I'll find that out later. Whatever the case is, as you guys see here, I I just want the truth to be known. And I think that's the best way to approach something like this. You shouldn't just take someone who's accused of something like this and just find every reason to only say things that make him look bad and always assume the worst of everything, but you also shouldn't take the attitude of, oh, well, I personally liked him before this, so there's no way he's guilty. Unfortunately, there are people that you personally like, and then you find out later they've done some bad things, and you have to acknowledge that they've done these bad things. And you can't just close your eyes to it because you've uh, had a good relationship with them in the past. So I, I only want the truth of the matter to really come out. And as you see, I'm, I'm pointing out some things which don't seem to be fair to him, such as the bail. And I point out some things that are just weird, like the two-and-a-half-year gap in charges to arrest time, even though he was very public of where he was. And I point out the things that aren't very favorable to him, like the aliases, which I now think that he really was using. So that's my updates on Ray Davis. I will give you more updates as I find out more. The only things I won't tell you guys is anything told to me in confidence. So I will confess that I did not find these things myself that I'm referring to. I'm referring to right now. By the way, this is real stuff, but I'm 
I was not the one to acquire these pieces of information originally. It was acquired and then given to me. And it was not given to me for radio. It was just given to me. And what I asked this person was, uh, can I share this? And they said, yes. And they said, except watch out for the social security numbers on there. And I said, oh, you're right. So I blacked those out. I blacked the driver's license number out. And then I shared it because I was told I can. So anything told to me in confidence and told to me that I shouldn't share it publicly, I won't. And anything Ray Davis himself communicates to me in any way, I'm not going to share if he doesn't want that. Because I want to be fair to everybody, and I don't want to betray anyone's word, or my word, I don't want to betray my word to others. And I don't ever bite the informational hand that feeds me. I say that a lot here, that if you have information to give me, I'm not going to make you sorry that you gave it to me. I'm not going to give you negative reinforcement for telling me things in the future. I'm not going to give others who might hear about this uh, a fear of telling me anything. I, I want people to feel comfortable coming to me with things. And that's why when there's ever a question of should I share this, I always want it to be cleared up that I can before I do. Even if it's something a lot of people would want to know, I think, no, I can't. And the only time it becomes really tough is when it's something I feel everyone should know. But then the person sharing it with me doesn't want it shared. For example, someone brings me a very credible story of someone who is an ongoing scammer, and then I want to tell everyone, and then I'm told, no, 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 you you can't make this public yet. Then I have a tough decision to make, because I've got to think about the good of the community versus the uh, betraying the confidence of someone who told me. And there I have to assess the situation and figure out the best thing to do. There's no right answer in that one. Uh, but if it's just something where the public would be curious and like to know, then no, I would never share it. Only time I would share something like that is if uh, I felt if I didn't, that more people can get hurt. And I, I don't mean like potentially, I mean like if, if there's like an ongoing scammer who's running scam, 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 and I'm told as it's going on, and then told not to say anything, then it's very hard to stay quiet and just let people more people get scammed. That's that's the type of thing where you have to say, wait a minute, I, I can't just keep quiet about it. It's kind of like, like let's take a real extreme example. Let's say someone came to you and said, hey, um, you know those murders you've been seeing on the news? I actually know who's doing it for sure, but, but you got to keep the secret. Or if someone says, if I tell you something, we promise not to tell anyone, you could go, yeah, sure. And then they tell you that murderer who's, who's been in the news, uh, I know who it is. But but don't tell anyone. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. No, I think I need to tell people because uh, this person's killing people. And if I don't tell someone, then they're going to kill more people. Like, so sometimes you have to. Sometimes you have to betray trust when that type of thing's going on. But other than that, uh, you got to keep quiet if someone asks you to stay quiet. And I try to be very good about that. All right. So there's your Ray Davis update. That's pretty amazing that they publish the Social Security number. And the driver's license number. Well, this is those are public records, Jeff. No, um, no, this is something someone showed me. This is not something. Well, it's sort of. It's not. Let me let me put it this way. It's not something you just go online and look up. But at the same time, it's uh, 
it's not something that's really restricted either. You, it requires some effort to get, and they won't show it to everybody. But it's it's also so it's not like totally private information. It's not like someone hacked into the police computer and sent this to me, or it's not like some person at the police department is corrupt and sent this to me. It wasn't like that. Someone someone was uh, able to get this with a full knowledge of of the police department, but at the same time, you can't just go on some police website and get it, and and it's not all that easy to request. And I, I was surprised at how much was up there. You're, I, I'm not taking away from that point, but um, I definitely was not going to be the person to distribute the socials out there. So that was redacted. It's going to be the it's going to be on Poker Fraud Alert, though, guys. If you wanted the the information that's going to come out, is going to be fastest on Poker Fraud Alert, and it's going to be more detailed than Poker Fraud Alert. You'll see. That's the way it's been the whole time. We we get the goods here when we when we take interest in a story. We get the goods here. Okay, let's move on to the next subject here. Are you in the free roll this week, Trader Risky? I'm busted sixth. You're the sixth out, you're saying? Are you, you, was sixth out or, or sixth place? Yeah, I was six, no, six, six, sixth place. Oh, sixth place. Okay, that's better than sixth out. Okay. All right, so moving on here. Not really. I got paid the same as that guy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You actually would have been best off first out. Okay, so I want to talk about the issues on Bovada and Ignition this Thanksgiving weekend, and I'm sure they affected you, Trader Risk. I'm not sure. Maybe you were doing something. Did you run into the issues connected? They, aff- they affected me. Okay. I, th- I thought they probably would. I know, you, I know you're a degenerate who loves your uh, Bovada ignition. But uh, this was very bothersome to a lot of people who wanted to play some poker or bet some sports on that site, or one of those two sites. During the Thanksgiving weekend, there were uh, a lot of bad technical issues which made these sites essentially worthless. The issues occurred mainly on uh, Thursday the 28th, Thanksgiving, and uh, Friday the 29th, the day after Thanksgiving, which were two days that most people had off of work and off of school if they're college students or whatever, and days that people are just kind of home and they often would like to play online poker, especially because you have your Thanksgiving dinner early, and then the rest of the day there's really not that much to do. And everything's closed. And what, what what better day than to sit home and play online poker? And it was so cold in most of the country. Even Los Angeles was cold. It was a it was like a really really unusual cold day in Southern California, the twenty eighth uh, Thanksgiving. We mentioned it actually last week on, on the show that there were some problems connecting to ignition and Bovada, but the, these persisted on on the twenty eighth and twenty ninth. I can't imagine how much money they lost there with all the different players that would have played that could not play. This includes tournaments, this includes cash games, this includes sports, this includes the casino. You just, for the most of the day, you just simply could not connect. If you tried to bring up the client, the, the poker client for Bovada or Ignition, you just get like a black screen where it just simply never gets beyond that, where it's just black. And then if you go to the website of bovada.lv or ignitioncasino.eu and try to log in, uh, you get one of various disturbing things. Either you'll just get, like, nothing, or you'll be able to log in, and it'll seem fine, but then you look up at the top to make sure your money's still there, and you look at what your balance is, and then you get the bad news that your reported balance is... Zero point zero. And that's what happened to me. I was... On there, and I'm I'm looking, and I'm going, shit, my my balance is zero. Now I knew they were having a lot of problems. If it, if it had just been this by itself, I would have flipped out. 
but because I heard a lot of people were having problems, I'm like, okay, it's got to have to do with this. But but still, if you have substantial money on these sites, to see your balance listed as blank, it just says you know player balance, either it says zero or just blank. That's kind of disturbing, even if you know it's a system wide problem, because you start to wonder, well, did the record just disappear? Does this mean they're gonna that they're gonna disappear? Uh, like, what could this be? Like, for example, what if, for whatever reason, all of their records of everyone's balance went corrupt and they didn't have a backup? Or some form of that, where just all the records got destroyed. Okay, then what do you do? How do you prove what you had there? Like, it's just not a good thing to log on to an online poker site that's unregulated and see your balance is zero when it should not be zero. Trader Risky, did you see the zero balance trying to log in there? I never. <clears throat> excuse me. I don't think I ever got a zero balance. Okay, you're lucky. I it was got just it. either not being able to log in, or you know. yeah, I, I got everything. I got the black screen on the client. I got the either inability to connect to the website or connect to the website, and my balance is zero. I know many others who read the same type of thing. A lot of complaints about the zero balance, and this persisted through like I think pretty much all of Thursday and most of Friday, and finally it started to correct towards the end of Friday the 29th. And then people still had trouble sitting in poker games for a while, even though they could see their balance. Well, finally, I think like late Friday night, everything was fine. And uh, and things were back to normal. I have no idea what could have caused something like this. That's a pretty major problem to have the site down for almost two full days, which could have been two of the busiest days of the year. I wonder if anyone got fired over this. This was a pretty bad gaffe on their part. It also had to take away from people's confidence in the site. And I have to imagine this may have spawned a lot of withdrawals of people who were afraid after seeing the zero balance. Like It's just kind of a natural human reaction if your balance is zero when it shouldn't be. And then it pops back to the right thing after two days. Part of you wants to just hit, say, hey, I'm going to hit the cash out button and get the money now before this happens again. So I wonder if this scared a lot of people into withdrawing. In fact, I've been hearing of slow withdrawals since then, which I have to think might have to do with a big backlog of withdrawals to process because a lot of people wanted to withdraw after this scare. So I did withdraw after it, just 500 bucks, but it was pretty much standard. Okay, but it, it was it related to this, or you just happened to be withdrawing then? No, I just no, I just won the tournament, just took some money out. I was thinking of withdrawing, but I was waiting for Bitcoin to kind of stabilize itself. And then I'm like, oh, no, what if what if I've been waiting and then the whole thing goes down? I'm going to be just so pissed because I, I'm not going to say what I have on there, but it's, it's an amount of money that makes me upset to lose. Let me just say that. So I was not happy. And, and I have money on both sites, Ignition and Bovada, which brings me to my next point. The small piece of good news that came from this was that they – decided to place 25,000 points in every single player's bonus account who have, who's been active on the site. And this is just if you've been active on the site, not if you got interrupted doing anything or lost any money out of this. No. As long as you've been an active player, you're supposed to be getting 25,000 bonus points, which depending on your, your tier level there can be worth up to $25. Uh, Trader Ruski, did you find that 25,000? I sure did, but I forgot about it till you just brought it up. But I checked; I I got it earlier. They sent me an email or something. 
Yeah, you, I think you have to go on there and hit redeem or something to make sure that uh, it actually goes in your balance. You should go to your bonus thing and make sure it's there. Yeah, well, I'll double check that. In, now, fact, in fact, I'm telling all of you that too. That if you got it, like most of you probably got an email telling you you got it. But if you got it, don't just take it for granted. You need to go there and actually go to your bonus account and, and you'll see like active bonuses or something. You need to click redeem. I'm not sure how long you have to do to do that, but you need to go do that soon. And then that will transfer those points directly into your bonus account. Because right now you just have a bonus that you need to click redeem to get for 25000 if you haven't done this yet. So I got the 25000 on Ignition, no problem. The annoying thing is on Ignition, I'm a lower tier level because I haven't been there as long as I was on Bovada. So I can't get $25 on it. I think for me it's like seven. I think it's like $25 divided by 1.75 is what I'm getting. On Bovada, I would get the full $25 because I'm the, quote, Hall of Fame tier there. But... I went on to my Bovada account to go take a look at the $25 I should have received over there, and I received... 0.0. So that was a problem. Now, you may say, well, but you already got it on Ignition. Why, why would you deserve both? Well, because I play on both, and they're, they're two different sites, and you are allowed to play on both sites, and I'm not breaking any rules. The only thing you're not allowed to do is sit with yourself at any table, which I've never done. So that's uh, I, I have followed all the rules, and I should have been entitled to the 25,000-point bonus on both accounts. But I only got it on Ignition. And supposedly they're separate companies, so the excuse can't even be, well, we, we know you play on both, so we're only giving it to one. That wasn't the reason I didn't get it, and I knew it. So I called up Bovada Customer Service. First, I waited a little time. I knew I, I, I had to wait like a few days just for everything to cool down because I knew everyone would be flooding them with calls. But after that all cooled down, I called them up, and I got someone on the phone with a really thick accent. And I could already tell, not really from the accent, but just from the demeanor. It's kind of like an aggressive demeanor this woman had. I could just tell I was not going to get anywhere with her. But I explained it to her. And I said, I'm, I, for some reason, I didn't get the 25000 So she tells me, in her thick accent of where she's from, that the reason I didn't get the 25000 is because I was not interrupted while playing a tournament, and that's the only people who got it. <laughs> Absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. That's, everybody got it who was active on these systems. There's, you didn't have to be interrupted doing anything. In fact, I got it on my Ignition account. I was not interrupted doing anything. I just couldn't connect when I tried. So then she changed her story to, uh, we haven't showed that you were trying to connect during the time that we were down. I said, well, okay, but wouldn't you think that if you're down, that means you can't see if I'm trying to connect? <laughs> and she says, well, no, but we didn't see you trying. I go, Okay, but don't you think if you're having these many this many problems that maybe one of the problems is you can't see everybody who's trying to connect, that maybe people are getting different symptoms of the same problem? She wasn't buying it. Nope, you weren't trying to connect. I said, absolutely false. I did try to connect. In fact, I remembered specifically trying to connect because when I couldn't connect with Ignition, I opened up the Bovada poker client and I could not connect. So I remembered it. 
And I said, I didn't imagine this. So she says, well, still, you were not interrupted playing a tournament. Blah, blah. I go, oh, not this again. So then I told her, look, I know for sure that everybody got this who's been active on these sites. I'm not someone who hasn't played in two years and is now calling up asking for my $25. I'm someone who actively uses both sites and that both accounts should get it because everybody else who's been active on both sites has been getting it. I'm not looking for special treatment or special privileges. Just I want what everybody else got. And she said, everybody else didn't get that. It's only for people who are interrupted in some way. And I said, that's not true. My friends have told me that's not true. And I've read all over 2 plus 2. That's not true. I've read hundreds of messages about this. People who just get it, who tried to connect and couldn't. And she says, you shouldn't believe everything you read on the internet. (laughs) And I hate that response with a passion in general not just i hated her response i hate that response in general i hate when you know something is true because everyone and their mother on the internet is talking about it and they're all saying the same thing and then when you use that as a point of your own argument you're told well don't believe everything you read on the internet which on the surface is right you shouldn't believe everything you read on the internet but when you have hundreds of different people all saying the same thing and, and nobody contradicting them then yes, you should believe what you read on the internet. Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's wrong. So clearly, if there's people all over 2 plus 2, hundreds of different people saying, I got $25, I got $25, I got $25, I got $25. You know, they're all saying it, and most of them are describing they just couldn't connect at all. Then you believe it. Then you know 100% that's the way it is. You didn't have like hundreds of people conspiring to post on 2 plus 2 and collectively lie about getting the 25,000 points. I mean, there's no way. And I explained that to her, and of course, she either pretended not to understand or didn't understand. So I knew, obviously, I wasn't getting anywhere with her. So I asked, can I speak to your supervisor? I said, obviously, we're not getting anywhere here. I don't want to argue with you anymore. I'd like to speak to your supervisor. And she tells me, I'm sorry, I need to handle this. I'm denying your request to speak to the supervisor. Not the sound effect I meant, but I'll go with it. At this point, I was furious. And I said, okay, now now I'm going to call BS on you here for sure. I know at any time it is my right to ask to speak to a supervisor if you are not giving me proper service. I don't feel you're giving me proper service. I want to speak to a supervisor, and you do not have the right there to deny that to me. I know that I've been on this network since 2005, and you're not going to tell me that you have a right to refuse this. And she says, Sir, I have a right to refuse this if it's a matter that I need to handle myself. I said, but you don't need to. I said, you're not handling it. You're telling me you can't handle it, so yes, I want a supervisor. She says, okay, sir, can you at least give me a few minutes to research this? I said, okay, but what are you researching? I'm going to research the reason you didn't get it. I said, are you going to research the reason that I didn't get it in order to give it to me if I wasn't giving it correctly? No, she says. I'm going to research the reason why you didn't get it so you'd understand why you don't get it. <laughs> so that, that's a useful time spent on hold, right? Okay, sure. And didn't she already tell you the reason? She you, told you the reason right, why right, you weren't playing it. Right, right. But, but <laughs> she, she, yeah, she claims I wasn't trying to connect to it, which wasn't even true. But she, she says she's going to go research it to tell me the exact reason I'm not getting it. That's, that's real useful. Yeah, let me wait while you go find the exact reason you're telling me no. 
So I told her, no, I'm not going to waste my time waiting for you to come back with an excuse of why you're telling me no. If there's, if there's no chance you're going to give this to me, I'm not waiting on hold. I said, I want to speak to a supervisor to appeal this. And she says, sir, let me please just research. I said, no, I don't want to hear your excuse. No matter what excuse you give me, I guarantee I won't accept it because I know I'm right. So I don't care what you go research and find. I guarantee I'm not going to walk away and say, oh, yeah, you're right. I, 100% I know I deserve this 25000 and you're not going to talk me out of it. Transfer me to the supervisor now. I'm demanding this. Otherwise, I'm just going to call back, get someone else, and report you for refusing to transfer me. So finally, she says, okay, let me transfer you to a supervisor. So she did, and I'm like, oh, my God. My stress level was so high. So many times I call Bovada, my stress level so high. It's At least you can reach them on the phone which is better than I can say for a lot of networks. But whenever I call them, it's just always just such a struggle. It's just so stressful. They, they can't just act logically and fairly a lot, they, especially the lowest level reps. And, and I was aware that this person either may not have the authority to help me or was going to refuse. So I was ready to just give up with her and ask for the supervisor. But the problem is when I tried that, I, I was denied the supervisor. I finally get the supervisor and I'm like, my hair is standing up on end and I'm so stressed and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm going to get like a terrible supervisor too. This is going to be awful. Well, no, finally a good part of the story, the supervisor comes on and I can tell from her voice, like much nicer. You could just tell the first one to answer with like a chip on her shoulder from the second she said, hello, the supervisor came on, sounded much more friendly, sounded much more cooperative within like the first few words. I could tell like I had a chance with her. So I explained the whole thing to her. And then she gave me much better information. So no, it was not that they couldn't detect that I was trying to connect. I mean, that's insane. Our system's down, so but we couldn't tell if you were trying. We saw you weren't trying to connect to us. Like, that would make no sense. So she explained, no, that's not what it was. They had some stupid criteria as to whether or not you get the 25000 Very arbitrary, in my opinion. Or on, on Seinfeld, I would say, uh, very arbitrary and capricious. The criteria was that sometime between November 28th, Thanksgiving, and November 30th, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, Eastern Time, that you had to have connected to, uh, to, to the site and placed some kind of wager at some point. That's what makes them consider you active. So if you were active... Right before all this happened on the 28th, which wasn't much time, or if you were active after the whole thing was corrected, on later on the 29th or on the 30th, then you uh, you get the 25,000. And active is defined as placing any bet of any kind, not just logging in, but placing any bet of any kind. So the funny thing was when she looked at it, she says, hmm, I actually see that you did log in uh, on one of the, I forget what to say, one of those three dates I logged in. I said, okay, good. I get it, right? She says, no, you didn't place any bets. I said, well, okay, maybe not. I said, but I've been placing some sports bets on Bovada. I know I've done some this week before and after this occurred. She says, yeah, I actually see that. You placed sports bets on Bovada on November 27th. You placed four of them. And on December 1st, you placed three of them. (laughs) I said, come on. Come on here. So, So because I wasn't placing any bets from November 28th through the 30th, two of those three days of which you were down, basically the only day I could have realistically placed a bet was the 30th, and because I chose not to place any bets on the 30th, but I placed a lot of bets on the 27th and the 1st, the two days surrounding that period, 
I don't qualify. They come on. That that's the most arbitrary thing I've ever heard. She says, "No, sir. I'm just explaining the way the computer uh, calculated and why it didn't give give you the twenty five thousand. I said, "Okay, no, that's fine. Like, I, I don't agree with that criteria, but fine. That's what you chose. So I know it wasn't personally directed at me in any way, and I know it wasn't actually an error. But let's use some common sense here. This was meant to give it to players who were trying to connect during those days." And the way you figured that out was if they've been active before or after this in a short period of time, obviously these are active customers we want to give it to because they probably tried to connect on those days and couldn't, right? She said yes. I said, okay. So wouldn't you say if I placed four bets on the 27th and three bets on the on the 1st that that indicates that I've been an active player on Bovada? She says yes. I said, okay. So can we just use some common sense here and give me the 25,000 points? She says well, I don't have the authority to do it, but I'm going to contact the promotions team and ask them. I'm like, oh, God, no. The, I, I hate when they have to contact a team because you can't speak to the team, and then they can just make a decision and I'm stuck with it. I'm like, well, okay, how long do I have to wait? She said, no, no, I can do it right now. So I felt good about that because at least if she did it right now and they said no, then I could like send her back with another request of, you know, saying something different. So she puts me on hold, comes back and tells me that, yes, the promotions team agreed that they're going to make an exception and they gave me my 25,000 points. So hallelujah, I won. A lot of stress. Probably wasn't worth the $25, but I got it. Anyway, if you did not get your 25,000 and you have been active on Bovada or Ignition, and when I say active, I mean you had to have placed a bet or played a poker hand of real money, something like that. Something, something involving real money there is what they define as a bet. And if you've done this either a short time before or a short time after the period of November 28th to the 30th, but you didn't actually wager anything or play any poker on the 28th, 29th, or 30th of November, I would suggest you call up and ask for a supervisor. Don't bother with a bottom-tier rep because they won't help you. But get a supervisor and, and tell them. Just reason the same thing. Look, this is aimed at active customers, obviously. I know it was you had to place a bet on these three days, but two of the three days I couldn't log in at all, and the third day I just wasn't available to do it. So, uh, Well, and another thing, too, is they didn't email everybody to say the site was back up. So what are you supposed to do? Just keep trying it? Right. That's a good point, too. That's a good point, too. And you can bring that up as well. You, you, never, you didn't even know it was back up. You gave up after trying for two days. So, But but definitely, if you've been active there, you know, it's like November 20-anything, 20, 21st, 22nd, 23rd, or sometime in early December, I mean... We're into early December now, December 6th. But if, if you've been playing actively and you just happened to not play in those three days, two of which they were down, and you didn't get the 25000 definitely call up and speak to them. Do not email. Do not email. Because you're going to get a big no as a response. You need to call up and get a supervisor. That's what you need to do. Now, you may wonder, what are the phone numbers to call up? Because they don't make these numbers very public. They are not very public with the numbers to reach Bovada or Ignition, especially Ignition. They like to hide these numbers. I don't know why, because they're, they're working numbers, but for whatever reason, they hide these numbers. So I'm going to give them to you, the super top secret numbers. You ready? Don't tell anybody. It's a secret. Here we go. I, I'm expecting all of your confidence here, okay? Nobody listening now, tell these to anybody. I'm trusting you. Yes, you. Do not give this to anybody. Do not post it anywhere. Are we really mad? This is between me and you, okay? Okay, here we go. They're gonna be, I mean, they'd be mad if I knew I'm giving this out, but I'm, I'm trusting you. For Bovada, 888-263-0000. 
That's 888-263-0000. Get, uh, you should connect to just customer service. And then for Ignition, 855-370-0600. Again, 855-370-0600. That's for Ignition. Those are the super top secret phone numbers to reach these two sites. Get a supervisor on the phone. And if you've played actively shortly before or after the period of November 20th through th- 28th through 30th, like right before, right after, and you didn't get your 25000 then raise issue the same way I did. And make sure to check whether you got it or not first. And if you did get it, make sure you click the redeem button. Go to your bonus or reward section on the website. Not the poker client, but on the website. www.bovada.lv or www.ignitioncasino.eu. Log in and go to the rewards or bonus section there and look at your pending bonuses or active bonuses and make sure you hit redeem to transfer that 25,000 points over. And I, I think you'll be successful in getting this done. May require a little bit of arguing, but you can do it if it's worth it to you. For me, it was the principle. Like, if everyone's getting it, I'm not, I'm not going to be stiffed out of it. It was pissing me off. Because I am a good customer. I, I've played on Bovada slash Bodog all the way back to 05. And I'm an active Ignition customer too. So if they're giving everybody who's active on one or both sites $25 per site, then give it to me too. And I understand how it didn't happen. I mean, it was, it was a dumb criteria. They should What they should have done, if I was in charge and I was going to give 25000 to everybody who's active on the site recently, I would have extended the dates further back and further forward. Not just one day when the site was working and two days it wasn't. Because it's also people may not have been available to play. What if you wanted to play on, on, the, on Thursday and Friday and then Saturday you're gone? Tough luck on you? I mean... The, it's, it was too narrow of a, of a time frame. It's always something with these guys. But at least I emerged victorious and got my $25. It's important to me. You know, I'm not going not gonna to let them get away with this. It's not my right to get it, but if fair customer service practices dictate that I should get this. And I, I hate when everyone gets something like this and I don't. I don't think I'm special. I really don't. Some people think that, that I think I deserve more than everybody else. I don't. I just want to, I want to get what everybody else gets. That, that's what one of my biggest pet peeves is when dealing with a business is when most other people get something and I do not get it. That's my problem. I'm not special, but I'm also not anti-special. I shouldn't be low, I shouldn't be below everybody. Now, if it's something where someone's earned a status and they get something that I don't get for being a lower status, I, I don't resent them. So if someone is a, a better customer, or spent more money at the business and gets treated better or gets special privileges, I don't. Fine, I understand. That's the way it works. But not where just the general public gets something that I don't because of some technicality. That's crap. And you guys know how I feel when everybody gets $25 and I don't. That's just something I can't stand. There might be some other reasons for this. Might be certain factors that drive me to do this more than others. But that's me. Okay. Moving on, here's another update. 
an update to a previous story we've told about Marilyn Live. This is kind of an Alan Kessler origin story that we covered here. And I have an update that pretty much uh, nobody else knows, to my knowledge, at least of those that were actively discussing. And people know about this, but it's not widely known or really reported anywhere. And I am going to report it here on PokerFraudler.com, an update on what's going on. So back in September, late September, I'm not sure if we covered it in a late September show or an early October show, but nevertheless, we covered it, where Alan Kessler posted about a small but problematic fine print issue regarding a WPT tournament at Maryland Live, which is in Maryland, obviously. And that is, it was advertised on their flyer as a $400 satellite to the $3,500 WPT event, the main event. But the $400 satellite was not really a $400 satellite. It was, for all practical purposes, a $410 satellite. And while that may seem stupid to complain about, and what's $10, the problem is that this was put in the fine print, that in big print on the top, it says $400 satellite for September 2019 WBT main event, and then in the small print, buried in all the fine print about the event, it says $10 dealer add-on for 5,000 chips at the table. Well, players normally started with 12,000 chips. So you start with 12,000 chips, but for another $10, a whopping $10, which is... uh, 2.5% of the buy-in that you just paid of $400, for 2.5% more of a buy-in, you get 5,000 more chips, which is almost a 50% increase in chips. Obviously, you'd have to be a tremendous moron not to pay the extra $10. You you must hate money and hate your chances to win the tournament if you're not paying an extra 10 to get those 5,000 chips. It's not mandatory, but it's mandatory for anyone with a functioning brain. And we even called up Maryland Live and confronted them about this with a, with a semi-prank call. And we did a whole segment about this on Poker Fraud Alert, either at the very end of September or the beginning of October. You, you can find it if you go into our archives. Anyway, there was a debate about this on Twitter. Alan Kessler brought it up. And yes, Alan Kessler complains about a lot of things, I know. But this is one of the cases where he complained and he was right. But a lot of people gave him a hard time. Oh, come on, Alan. It's only $10. Why does it matter? This is for the dealers. This $10 is going directly to the dealers. It's a dealer add-on. Why are you being such a dick about the dealers? Let them get paid. Everybody was missing the point. Not everybody. There were some people who, who got it. But there were many people missing the point that the problem here is that it was not made clear to everybody. It was hidden in the fine print. And if you paid $400 to enter and then showed up with no cash in your pocket, you were fucked. Then you couldn't get that extra 5,000 chips that you totally would want. So the bottom line is they just need to be upfront and direct about it. If they want this $10 dealer add-on, fine, but make sure everybody who registers understands that it's a $410 tournament or $400 plus 10, and that if you want these extra 5,000 chips that you need to put in the final 10, that it's it's up to you. If you want to be an idiot and not do it, you can can come in for 400 instead of 410 and and, and lose 5,000 chips out of the whole thing, but everybody should know upfront. It should be very, very clear to every single participant that this is the case. It shouldn't be buried anywhere. It shouldn't be hidden anywhere. And that was my point. And obviously they're trying to hide it. Obviously they're not going to put $400 satellite in big print and bury the $10 in the fine print if they're not trying to hide something. 
And I didn't understand why they were hiding it. It's not like $10 more is a big dealer is going to dissuade anybody from playing. I, I don't see, think anyone in the field is going to go, well, I would have played it if it was 400 but since it's 410 forget it. I, I don't think there's anyone who would have said that. So so why did they hide it? It, it seemed to be kind of like a legal issue to where uh, something about uh, how they can't they, they can't technically put in the, the mandatory dealer tips. I, I don't even know what the law is over there in Maryland. But uh, something where it's kind of like a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, like like uh, we got to kind of sneak this in for the dealers, whatever. But here's the problem. Okay, I, I can sympathize with all that. And I can understand all that if that's the truth. I don't even know if that's the truth. But whatever way you do, it has to be – you have to be honest with the players or just don't do it. And I don't want to see the dealers get screwed – there's dealers who listen to this show. I want to see them get paid. I don't mind the fact that uh, you, you turn a $400 event to, to 410 so the dealers get paid properly. That's fine. But just make sure everybody understands it. Make sure it's very clear to everybody. And if you have to hide it to where some people will miss it, and then some people may not show up with any cash in their pocket, that's the whole thing with a tournament. You don't have to bring cash. I've, I've showed up to World Series events before with no cash in my pocket. With zero cash in my pocket. Why? Because I bought in already. So I know I'm just going to play the event, and I don't need cash. So I'm down there with no cash. Attention muggers. But seriously, a lot of people show up to these tournaments where they bought in beforehand with no cash because they know they don't need it. That's the whole point of a tournament. You don't need cash. So it's it's they, they should not have this. It has to be very clear. That this $10 will get you that other 5000 so at least everybody knows to show up with $10 when they come to the event. And there's no way around that. So Kessler brought it up on Twitter. He got attacked by some people who didn't think of this properly and were uh, attacking him without justification. I defended him. I made a segment about this on radio. And I figured this isn't going to change. And in fact... I was told that this is happening in a lot of different venues, not just Maryland Live. So I figured this is just some stupid thing that's being done and just kind of the way it is. And even though it's unfair and it's stupid and it shouldn't be allowed, it's happening. Bottom line is if it's, if this is illegal in some way and they're burying it in the fine print, stop doing it. If it's totally legal, then just make it more clear. I doubt the law says you you can't put the $10 in big print. It has to be in fine print. I doubt that. So if it's allowed, then do it and make it clear. If it's not allowed, stop doing it. Don't do a thing. See, I don't like them doing something illegal either if this is illegal. Like there's there's no excuse. I can't think of a single excuse to where it should be buried in the fine print. So why am I going off about this again two months later? Well, a change has occurred. This is what I've been told by someone at Maryland Live. I was told, Maryland Live caved. They're no longer doing dealer add-ons at the table, but instead are incorporating them into the buy-in. It's pissing off dealers and fucking things up for them paycheck-wise. So I asked this person back, what do you mean they're fucking things up paycheck-wise? And the person said, the ones I know there said they're making less per down because of it. Per down is is, uh, is, is referring to their, their kind of like a shift. So, uh, this is interesting that they changed this. Now, there were two forms of pressure about this. The first form of pressure was Alan Kessler himself, who was complaining on Twitter. 
but again, more people were against him than for him on there. It's not, it's not like there was a wave of support for him here. Most, most people were saying, come on, Kessler, stop being such, such a cheap idiot and bitching about $10. Like they, they weren't understanding the point. And even when I was taking his side, they're, they're still more against us than for us. And the second form of protest to this was this show. And we even made a call to them on this show. So it's not clear what caused them to change this. But they have changed this, and it's not a coincidence. So they either changed it because of Kessler, because of this show, or both. I actually think both. I think they are very aware of it. I mean, like, when we make these calls, these casinos are usually become aware of it. Not while we're making the call a lot of times, but they, they become aware afterwards that we've called them and we screwed them on the show. Which I wasn't screwing with. It's not really a good term. I, make, I kind of make comedy out of serious situations. That's why I call with these, these weird characters and stuff. But but the underlying reason for the call is serious, and that's why like I'm actually making these calls with purpose. Sometimes I'll make the calls for entertainment and, and no purpose. But but in this case, in many cases like this, I'll call up about a, a something I really do feel strongly about. But then I'll try to make something funny out of it during the phone call. But but regardless, they obviously came away with the belief that there's a problem here. And I don't know if it's because maybe they were doing something that was quasi-illegal and they were afraid that this is going to come back and bite them or maybe they thought that this is creating too much of a PR nightmare, whatever. So according to this person, I have verified it, but I have no reason to disbelieve them, that they are, they've done away with this whole scheme and now they just incorporate it in the buy-in like I said they should. Like just make it a $410 event and take $10 off the dealer. However, he's saying that it's causing them to make less, which I don't understand how. Like, if it's the same $10, who cares how they collect it? But uh, And maybe that person can explain it to me. But, uh, look, dealers, I feel for you. If this made you make less money, I'm sorry, but you have to look at the point of view of the players. Everything has to be upfront, honest, direct, and transparent for the players. There should never be any hidden charge for any tournament ever. Never. You can have add-ons, but everybody, 100% of players who register have to know about that add-on. Not 90%, not 75%, not 95%. 100% of the players need to be informed and clearly know about the add-on or they are getting ripped off. That's a fact. Buy-ins, add-ons, all this should be very, very clear to every player when they register, especially something kind of weird and non-standard like this. And what I mean by non-standard is not this, even if it's standard in the area or standard for these WPT satellites, I mean, like, like someone like me, okay, I've been part of poker for almost 20 years. I wouldn't have known about this. I wouldn't have known about this add-on. Like once I saw people at the table doing it, I'd understand. But um, when, when registering for this, if I were in Maryland and registered for this, and let's say I registered the day before and then showed up with no cash, I would have not known to bring $10 with me. So if this is going to confuse anybody, then it's wrong. You should never be hiding important uh, requirements like this, like having to pay an extra $10 to get a fair stack. If you're hiding that, then you're doing something wrong. If you're hiding that, you're being dishonest with the players. So even if, if by making this the way it should have been in the first place, it's costing the dealers more money, I'm sorry, but... The first priority is to be fair to the players and not cheat them. And if that happens to cost the, the dealers money, 
then that's between the dealers and the casino, and the casino needs to fix that for the dealers. But you can't blame the players or anyone who brings this issue up that is unfair to the players when the dealers make less money. But at least it changed. At least that happened. I do like when we have an impact, though. I don't know for sure that it was us, but it, it, it has to be either us or Kessler or both. And I kind of think it's both. Now, if Kessler had brought it up and there was a wave of support behind him, I'd say, okay, it was probably Kessler. But there wasn't. If, if Maryland Live was reading that, they're probably thinking, hmm, well, look, everyone's laughing at Kessler over there. They're, they're, they're calling Kessler an idiot complainer and a jerk and uh, petty. So, all right, looks like we're doing the right thing. Like that's, that's what they probably would have thought from reading his response. The response to him, I don't mean his response, the response he got. But I think because we got on the bandwagon here too, on his side, I think that probably pushed it over the edge. That's my guess. Could be wrong, but that's my guess. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Somebody texted me, what is the shortest show you've ever done? Well, in 2012... I was doing much shorter shows because I actually had to finish by a certain time when everybody was going to sleep. See, here's here's what was happening. Uh, At this lovely secret location where I do most of the shows, this room where I am right now had a bad echo problem. And the reason it had an echo problem was it didn't have all that much furniture in it yet. And it's a room with a high ceiling... The ceiling's probably like uh, at least 15 feet, maybe more. And it's got uh, hard floors. So it's it's kind of like walking into a, a, a public bathroom. It doesn't look like a public bathroom, but it's, it's kind of the same effect where there's an echo. So I tried a test in here once to do radio from here, and there was a terrible echo. So I said, crap, I can't. I, I wanted to do radio in this room, but I... I don't think I can because there's this awful echo. So what I would do is I would be doing the radio from a different room, which is near where everybody sleeps. And then once everybody goes to sleep, obviously I can't continue doing radio and disturb everybody, so I'd have to end the show by that time. So we had a lot of shows that were kind of like two hours in length around that time. But then finally we we got furniture in this room. And between the furniture and between an oriental rug that's in the room, this is all end of the echo. That's why you don't hear any echo. We just couldn't have the basically bare room with the hard floors and the high ceiling. That caused the echo. So now there's no more echo. Now I can do the show as long as I want. Though I did do some short shows when I came back from my issues last year simply because my voice couldn't take it. I I, I developed something called vocal fatigue at the time. And I think it's because my body was still adjusting to that lump feeling in my throat And when I was talking, it was putting a lot more stress on my voice box than normally talking would be. And I couldn't control it. It was happening subconsciously. So when I talked for like 20 minutes straight, it felt like I'd been talking for six hours. So there's no way I could do a long show. Fortunately, as I got used to that lump sensation, it it just kind of reverted back and everything was working normally again and I could – talk normally. The only thing I notice is the difference now is my throat gets drier. So that's why I have to take a break usually in the middle of the show and kind of rinse it out with that dry mouth rinse to continue. So I even did some short shows 
towards the end of last year, kind of middle end of last year, when I first came back from the problems I was having. Text from the 505, Real Grinders is probably finished. Well, I see, I don't agree with that. I don't think it's finished, but it's, it's, it's already not as active as it once was. And if Ray Davis goes to prison, then it might have some problems. Like if somehow he beats the charges or just gets time served. Because keep in mind, all the time he's spending in jail now, he gets credit as time served. So if he gets like a, a sentence of uh, four months or five months, then he's already served it and he can just leave. But if he's there, let's say he gets a three-year sentence, then that probably kills real grinders because then Ray Davis is not running it anymore. And yeah, it's got mods there, but I, I it, it may eventually just die. If he comes back, uh, th- then it can liven up again. His absence is killing it. And having to moderate the posts there is killing it, where they don't let posts through until they approve them. It just is kind of slowing down the whole thing. It was once very, very active. Still has a lot of members. Still has like 18,000 members. But people are starting to get out of the habit of going there, and everything is getting much less interaction compared to what it did before all of this. So it seems to be more dying just from the moderation and from Ray's absence rather than like everyone walking out because of what he's accused of. Uh, I still post there because, uh, you know, it's an active poker group or was I don't post as much either because it's not active anymore. But it, it was still a, a place a lot of people are talking about poker. There just isn't really discussion of Ray Davis. It's kind of just like a, a bunch of people uh, gathered together. There are 18,000 different poker players and you know, different topics of poker come up and some are interesting to discuss. If in case you're wondering, I don't think Ray is making any money from it at this time either, because he's not there to promote anything. The only money he was making was from promoting various things like that uh, Fox Poker and then some sports betting service that uh, someone else is running. Like he, people would be running these little illegal or quasi-illegal gambling services, and he'd kind of be like uh, doing advertising for them. He was making money that way, but he's not there to do the advertising for them, so that's all ground to a halt. British poker player Calum Lodge is going to be spending time in prison. And this is yet another disturbing story of the aftermath of a poker game where you think you've won, but it turns out that you've really lost. In this case, the opponent of Calum Lodge at a bar poker game in England won money, but lost part of his ear. This disturbing story, as I said, comes out of England, and I just told you a story not too long ago about a guy who murdered his opponent who beat him in a Florida poker game, like a private game. This one is not too different, at least it didn't involve murder. This one just involved the biting off of an ear. In September of 2018, in Hartlepool, England, which is in northern England, Calum Lodge, who I've never heard of before, I I have to imagine he's not a titan of the poker community, but uh, Calum Lodge, who was 29 at the time, was very drunk, and he had lost in a a bar poker game and saw uh, John Archer, who was also in that game, and Lodge was very angry. I don't know uh, exactly what reasons, but he was very angry. 
and he <laughs> and hungry. Yeah, maybe hungry too. Drunk, angry, and probably hungry. And so first he kicked and tripped John Archer's friend, and uh, then I guess Archer tried to defend his friend. And as he and Caleb Lodge were rolling around fighting with each other, Lodge reportedly yelled, I'm Chucky, I'm Chucky, and then bit off a sizable chunk of John Archer's ear. <laughs> the Chucky he was referencing were was uh, the Chucky character in the those horror films. I, did that? Did that character ever bite off any ears? I don't think so. Did Chucky ever bite anybody's ears? I don't recall. Yeah. Well, maybe the chat room knows. But uh, he he yelled, "I'm Chucky! I'm Chucky!" and then bit off part of John Archer's ear. John Archer was unable to have his ear reattached. The the portion that was bit off, the surgeons were unable to reattach, even though they tried. They they found the piece of the ear and put it on ice, kind of like John Bobbitt's penis. Remember that whole thing? They they put his his penis that was cut off by his wife on ice, and they were actually able to put his penis back on. Uh, not so lucky for John Archer and his ear. So he has a missing piece of his ear permanently. And uh, the police were called. They arrested uh, Caleb Lodge. And uh, then John Archer wrote two letters to the English court actually pleading for Caleb Lodge to be treated leniently because uh, Lodge was saying that he was sorry. That's really strange. Wouldn't you think if you had a piece of your ear permanently gone, like every day you wake up and look in the mirror and there's a piece of your ear missing, that you would not want that person to get leniency in court? But uh, somehow uh, somehow John Archer still felt bad. Caleb Lodge just said, John, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I went after the ear like that. Um, I don't want to spend a long time in the clink. I'm afraid this is going to be my fate. Uh, If you could be so kind as to send a letter to the judge, maybe one or two, and um, inform him that... um, you're, um, you're, you're letting the water run under the bridge, and uh, you're not going to uh, wish for me to be incarcerated for um, a very long stint. And uh, then John Archer said, uh, "Oh no, 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 mate, it's all, it's all right. It's not going, not, not going. I guess mate's Australia. I shouldn't be saying that, but uh, oh no, no, it's 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 fine. It's fine. Uh, you know, my, my ear's gone, but uh, you know, I didn't. I can still hear just fine. So it's you know, it's just." of cosmetics and I'm not the uh, the prettiest bloke anyway so uh, you know does it really matter so no problem I'll, I'll send a, I'll, I'll, I'll fire off two letters there of recommendation that your sentence be light the problem was that despite the fact that his victim wrote two letters to the court then in September 2019 I guess he must have been out on bail or something that a Calum Lodge again drunk showed up to some house in also in Hartlepool, England, with a 30-inch machete. And uh, he was possibly going to use this machete. I don't know why he was there with a 30-inch machete, but then the, the person he was going to use it against pulled out a gun and pointed it at him. And then Caitlin Lodge says, ah, well, if you're going to bring a gun to a knife fight, I guess I'm rather unmatched. So he put, he put the, the machete down and was arrested. Turned out the gun was only an air pistol, so he actually may have had a, a better chance than he thought. But he really thought he was up against a real gun. Decided uh, not to have a go at the gentleman uh, holding the firearm. So he was arrested for that. 
And they said, well, why did you show up at this guy's house with a 30-inch machete? And he says, oh, this, this gentleman, he spent the funds that were saved for a deceased friend's family and spent it on drugs. So the, apparently some money that was supposed to go to somebody who was a friend of his that died, they're supposed to go to that person's family, this, this person that he was going to attack with a machete uh, had spent the money on drugs, according to Caleb Lodge, and he was bringing the machete over to teach him a lesson. But nevertheless, that is not something you do when you're about to be on trial for a previous attack against someone. They ended up giving him a pretty stiff sentence. Calum Lodge has been sentenced to five years in prison. In England, that is a pretty severe sentence. The sentencing is not as tough over in England as, as it is in the U.S. So to get five years in prison for an assault that was not life-threatening is uh, sort of unusual, though I, I feel that's an appropriate sentence. In fact, I feel it should have been a longer sentence because Calum Lodge has a track record. And keep in mind, he was only uh, 30 years old when he was on trial here this year. In his 30 years on this earth, he has 26 previous offenses <laughs> that uh, were recorded by law enforcement. I don't know if these were all convictions, but uh, these were for assault, affray, affray, I think it's something you'd only be charged with in England, affray, burglary, theft, racially aggravated harassment, that's nice, he's a racist too, and uh, possessing a firework at a sports ground. Well, he does everything. Affray. Trader Risky, have you ever known anyone to be charged with affray? I've never even heard of it. Afray means uh, fighting in a public place that disturbs the peace. That's funny. It's, what uh, were the other 26 charges? Were they? Did he serve any time before this? I, I imagine. I, must yeah, have. he must have. I didn't have that information. But give me those 26 different incidents he's been arrested for, and he's only 30. You think he'd get more than five years for biting off someone's ear. Uh, and I don't know if he's going to get charged with the whole thing about the machete. Maybe that's probably a se separate case. Uh, now, believe it or not, this is not the only time an ear was bitten involving poker. Would you believe this has happened once before and also in England? <laughs> I wonder if Mike Tyson is secretly English. How are they both in England? Like, England's not even where most poker is played. How, how come with the two known ear-biting cases involving poker, how come there's uh, both of them in England? That's what I want to know. So the other one, the other incident that occurred in England involving ear biting. This was when uh, 27 year old Nicholas Salisbury of Ipswich got three years in prison for an ear biting attack there as well. Yes! In jolly old England, you may win your poker game, but you don't always walk away with your ear. Why the ear? Why, why do they go after the ear in England? We have the incident in 2015. We have an incident in 2018. By, by that time frame, you have to say that uh, we're, we're going to be upon another one in uh, 2021. There's going to be another ear biting, and probably every three years henceforth. And uh, how come this is what happens in England? 
Why don't they bite other parts of the body? Why don't they bite off a finger? Maybe a toe? Or maybe they even bite off a piece of the stomach if the stomach is rather large and protruding. Why do they have to go after the ear? Maybe they should go after the eyes because the eyes are what's used to, to see the poker cards. Your ears don't really use so much when you're playing poker. In fact, you can play poker when deaf. So why go after the ear? This is a mystery that no one can solve. Not even Scotland Yard. And it only seems to be happening in jolly old England. But the fact is that um, Nicholas Salisbury of Ipswich, who's got out of prison uh, last year, and now uh, Caleb Lodge is going to be in prison until uh, 2024, most likely. Uh, they may have an ear in their belly, but um, they no longer have their freedom in the English countryside. Yes, God save us all in England. My God, the ear biting there. I'm going to watch out. If I go to England and play poker, I'm going to wear earmuffs. I'm going to be careful. You think you've won, but then you've really lost. In some cases, you've lost something that you can't get back. This poor John Archer guy, what, what's he going to do Like about dating? I don't know if this guy's married, but if he's not, if he's single, like he's, he's going to go out with women and he's going to show up with like a, a bite mark hole in his ear? He said, oh, don't mind the ear here. I got in a little scrap involving a poker game. I, I beat a bloke in poker and he, he, he beat me out of my ear. It's um, rather unfortunate, but um, it's true. And uh, I hope you don't, don't get too distracted by it. Uh, you know, I could, I could, I could do all of our dates in a hoodie if you don't mind, if if it's going to bother you. I mean, if you don't like looking at it, if it's rather disturbing. But um, um, you know, I, I said forgive and forget. That's my policy. I, I actually advocated for um, the gent who bit, bit my ear to uh, to not get a stiff sentence. But unfortunately, he uh, he took a machete out and, uh, and tried to um, stab someone. So that was the end of my letters there. But um, yeah. So um, anyway, um, are you into one ear gentlemen? It's got to be tough. Got to be tough. Okay, I want to give you guys a Jew tip of the week. And this is something that I think very few of you probably knew about or know about. Trey Daruski, before I get into the whole thing, were you aware, at least before hearing the agenda tonight, were you aware that your credit card carries a form of insurance to where if there is some damage to something you recently bought that they will send you the entire amount of money for the purchase back. Did you know you have that? I, I did. Oh, you knew? Oh, wow. Okay, you knew more than me about this. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, my dad knew more about it, so I know he told me over the years, but I've never used it. Yeah, I see, I didn't even know. I did not even know about uh, this insurance that actually it's uh, – I don't know if MasterCard has it too, but uh, Visa is what I use this time. And of course, uh, this just this doesn't just apply to one specific bank. This is any credit card with uh, with Visa, and this is coverage for any purchase that there's any kind of damage or uh, failure or whatever that is not related to the warranty. This is this is called a purchase insurance. I, bur- I bought, uh, at my girlfriend's request, some new slip covers for the outdoor furniture we have, which, which gets nasty over time. We, we take it in during the rainy season because if it rains on it, then it really gets nasty quickly. But, uh, so we take all those cushions in. But, uh, during the non-rainy months, of which there's many in Southern California, we have it out. But eventually the, co- 
covers on these cushions get gross just from being outdoors all that time. And, and keep in mind, you know, wind, dirt, you know, a lot of things just make this stuff gross and there's no way you can avoid it. So eventually this stuff needs to be replaced. You can either replace the whole cushions or replace the covers. So we replaced a lot of the covers and we actually brought, bought some fairly expensive covers that were a total of uh, $1,838 or something like that. And uh, we received them in uh, in July, in early July. And she was very happy and put them on and told me how great they looked. And she was very happy with all of it. Only to have, within a week, we only got to enjoy them for, I think, less than a week, when rats showed up and ate them. I don't know why. I don't know why these were good to rats, but rats actually showed up at night and and ate them. And when I say ate them, they didn't eat the entire covers, but they were biting off a lot of pieces to where the covers were obviously very ugly with just random holes all over them from rats eating them. Uh, We we since set up traps and poison everything to get rid of the rats there, but it was too little too late. The, uh, The covers had been eaten and ruined. So I was very frustrated about this. Here I just laid out over 1800 bucks for these covers, and in, in less than a week they were destroyed by rats. So I was just shrugging my shoulders, saying, okay, well, I guess it's kind of like a poker bad beat of $1,800. Except there was no upside. Unlike a poker bad beat where you're about to win and then lose, here I, I could only lose by the rats eating the covers. My girlfriend was talking to a neighbor about this, asking if they have problems with rats. And they said, yes, we do. The whole area has a problem with rats. Just uh, because we live in a an area that is uh, close to nature, shall I say, and there's a lot of uh, animals living there, and among those animals are rats. So there's no, it's not, it's not like uh, the rats are there because of a lot of garbage or food. It's just because rats are among the many animals that live in the in the area. So she told the story about what happened to our covers. And the neighbor said, oh, you should look into it. Your credit card probably covers that. So my girlfriend came to me and said, hey, you know, we I just heard that our credit card probably covers this. And I said, I don't know about that, but I'll call up. So I called up the bank that issued this credit card where I made the purchase. And they said, yes, we do, but it's not actually us. It's actually Visa. And I'll give you a website to go to to." read about it, and they gave me some website, which I don't remember now. And I, I read about it, and then I, I called up a phone number to uh, make a claim, and it turns out that you're actually better off doing it online. They directed me where to do it online. But basically, this is a benefit of visas. It's not a benefit of the credit card itself. It's not a, cre- it's not a benefit of the bank. And then Visa farms this out to a third-party company who just decides whether you get paid or not. So you you're dealing with this third-party company. It's not uh, Visa directly you're dealing with. And you have to go through a claims process, and you have to upload various things. You need to upload the proof of purchase, and uh, you have to list everything that was destroyed, and there's certain limits. Like if you buy something worth $100,000, no, you're not going to get that if, it, if, if something happens to it. But And it has to be within 90 days of when you purchased it, which, of course, this was. This was within like seven days of purchasing it. And uh, it, it was kind of unclear to me what the limits were, because uh, I, I read in one place the limit of, of what you're going to be paid is $1,000. Like I read here, like I'm looking at right now. 
each claim is subject to the maximum of the amount debited from the card or $500, whichever is lower. The maximum benefits payable per calendar year is $1,000. So I thought, well, okay, at least I'll get uh, either. That's still not totally clear. I'm thinking, well, they say each claim. Can I make two claims? They had like a lot of different individual things that added up to $1,833. Like it was a lot of different things I bought at once. So I go, well, can I make two claims to where it adds up to 500 and 500 and let's get 1000 Well, no. When I called up the third-party company that handles this, they actually told me that I can do up to like I think I think maybe it was five hundred per item, but it was up to like twenty thousand for the year. Something really high I was never gonna reach. So the I was not gonna bump into a maximum of one thousand. And the five hundred was fine because there wasn't a single cover that was worth five hundred dollars, obviously. It was like a lot of different covers that added up to eighteen hundred dollars. So it looked like from everything I could see that I, I could just put this all together for each all these different items I bought, even though it was a single charge of 1833, I could itemize the whole thing and show them it was a bunch of different items at once, and that since all of them are worth less than 500, and that since they claim I can have a yearly benefit of up to 20,000, that I should be able to get all 1838 back, you know, whatever, I, whatever I spent. But it, it was kind of confusing. But then, and then they told me on the phone that yes, that's true. But it, who like it, it was really weird too because the, the the third party company that handled this is. They answer the phone 24-7, but then they can't really do anything useful for you except during business hours. So it's like they're kind of just there to give you information during the rest of the time. I don't know why they even bother staffing during those hours. But like for some reason, you can call them at 3 a.m., but they can't do anything useful for you. But anyway, I submitted the claim online. Then there was some kind of fail, and I had to resubmit it. And it was kind of a pain in the ass, the whole thing. Because it was just confusing. And I had to submit pictures of the damage. So I submitted it. I waited some time. And I got back an email a few weeks later saying, okay, we need more pictures. Or no, it wasn't even that simple. They they said, uh, please call us back to find out what's going on with your claim. So I called up and they said, yeah, we, we need more pictures. They I had to call them to find out I need more pictures. So then I kind of dragged my feet on it for a long time. I just kind of – I don't know why. I just kind of did nothing for a while. And then like two months later in October, I'm like, you know what? I didn't ever send them more pictures. So I call up and go, uh, is it too late for me to send them more pictures or am I screwed? They go, no, no, no. It's still open. So I said, I took more pictures. I wasn't exactly sure what they were looking for. I just took more pictures, sent, uploaded the more pictures. I called back and said, uh, okay, I did the more pictures. They're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll resubmit it. So I waited, 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 waited. And uh, nothing happened for like a full month. And they were supposed to like get to it within a week. So I called up in November and I said, okay, what's happening? Do you need even more pictures? They said, no, no, no. It's still being adjudicated. I go, it's, be- it's been adjudicated for a month. What's going on here? So it looks like they did kind of like arresting Ray Davis. They just forgot about it. <laughs> so they said, Hang on, we'll check into this. They checked into it and they said, okay, we'll, we'll have a decision for you within a week. So I wasn't sure what to expect. I was wondering if they're just going to give me some kind of chicken shit denial or if they're going to give me some kind of partial payment or, or demand even more information until I finally get tired of it and just give up. But I got an email just one day later and the email said, my claim has been approved. <laughs> I was almost in denial. I'm going, what? Could this really be? Are they really going to send me the check for the entire 1800 whatever? So I called up and I said, 
okay, am I getting a check for the full amount? They said, yeah. I said, can you tell me that amount? They told me the amount. It's exactly the amount I paid. I said, okay, what can I expect? They said, five to ten days. Sure enough, check came. It was for the full amount. I deposited it, and I have all the money back. Great success. I would not have known about this if it were not for that neighbor telling us about the visa benefit where you get this uh, insurance. Now, I believe this is the one called Purchase Security. And it says here on this uh, guide. Now, by the way, again, this guide was incorrect about the maximum because they told me the maximum was really like 20000 And sure enough, I got more than the stated maximum on this document. This document claims you can get 1000 most, and I got 1800 something. So you can't trust everything you read on the internet as – a certain genius at Bovada once told me. But here are the items they claim are covered by purchase security. It says, uh, your eligible purchases are protected against damage due to the following eligible events. Fire, smoke, lightning, explosion, riot, or vandalism. I like riot. <laughs> if there's a riot in your backyard and someone damages your, your slip covers, you're covered. Uh, windstorm, hail, rain, sleet, or snow. But what's good about all this, you notice these are all like considered acts of God. Even if it's like outdoor furniture, like you, if if just like stuff going on outside screws up stuff you just bought, and was out there, then and it's within ninety days they'll they'll give you the money back, which is pretty amazing. Um, aircraft, spacecraft, or other vehicles. So if a plane crashes into your house and destroys it, I guess I guess you're in luck. <laughs> Not for your house, but in anything that the aircraft destroys. If you if if you've bought something new and then an aircraft crashes into your house and destroys it, you can at least get the value of the the item back. Same with spacecraft. If uh, if a spaceship crashes through your house, if a UFO crashes through your house, you're covered. Theft, except if it's from autos or motorized vehicles. So. If somebody breaks into your house and just steals it, it's covered. Accidental discharge of water or steam from household plumbing. Sudden accidental damage from electric current. But they say this doesn't apply to electric components. Items they don't cover. Animals and living plants, antiques and collectibles, boats, aircrafts, automobiles, and any motorized vehicle. Computer software. Items damaged as a result of weather other than lightning, wind, hail, rain, sleet, or snow. Well, what, what else is there? <laughs> lightning, wind, hail, rain, sleet, or snow. I mean, what? A tornado, I guess? Like, that, no, that's wind, though. What, what other kind of weather is there? I think they, they have it all covered. Um, yeah, I can't think. Can you think of one thing, Trader Ruski, that is not covered by weather for lightning, wind, hail, rain, sleet, or snow? It does not cover all weather. Isn't anything else a form of one of these? Okay, items purchased for resale, professional or commercial use, items stolen from automobiles, items that are lost or that mysteriously disappear. Then they they no, mysteriously disappear. Then they define mysterious disappearance means the vanishing of an item in an unexplained manner, where there's an absence of evidence that a wrongful act by a person or persons. Meaning, if you just lose something in your house. But nobody broke in and stole it, then tough luck. 
items under the care or control of a common carrier, such as like if, if the, the you mailed something or the it's in an airplane being uh, as luggage and it disappears, if that's not their problems, what they're saying. Items including but not limited to jewelry, watches, and watches from baggage unless hand-carried and under your personal supervision. Theft from or damage resulting from abuse, fraud, hostilities of any kind, uh, including but not limited to war, invasion, rebellion, insurrection, or terrorist activities. But I guess riots are okay. A confiscation by the authorities, risk of contraband, illegal activities, normal wear and tear, flood, earthquake, radioactive contamination, or damage from inherent product effects. Theft or damage resulting from misdelivery or voluntary uh, uh, parting from property, medical equipment, perishables, real estate, rented or leased op- uh, items, traveler's checks, cash, tickets, credit card, d- debit cards, any other negotiable instrument, or used or pre-owned items. So in my case... I had damage uh, from animals, which, if you notice, was not listed there. So I had to ask them, is animal damage okay? When I read this, I was like, this is going to really suck if vandalism they cover, but animal damage they don't. Because it's kind of the same thing. In fact, animal, animal damage you would think would be more covered because vandalism is where someone like, intentionally screws it up uh, – Animal damage is you – know, the rats are not purposely ruining my uh, slipcovers. They just wanted to eat them for some reason. They said, yes, it's covered. So as I said, this doesn't list everything. But uh, – and, and just the, the very basic description of this purchase security benefit is subject to the benefit limits and within the first 90 days of the, of the day of the purchase, purchase security will replace, repair, or fur- fully reimburse you for the amount debited from your Visa card for the eligible items of personal property purchased with a Visa card – in the event of theft or damage caused by the eligible events. So what it sounds like to me here from reading all this, remember, like things that aren't listed may still be covered, like my the animal damage. And I, and I didn't lie. It's not like I said, oh, someone ripped this up in my backyard. I, I told them rats ate it. I, I, I even sent them pictures of the rat feces that was next to it. So I was I was very honest about what really happened here. So even though animals weren't listed, that's, uh, they still covered it. It says animals and plants aren't covered, but I wasn't looking to have my animals covered. I was looking to have my items covered that animals destroyed. But it, it's looking like here that they will probably cover anything that is damaged that uh, wasn't through that, – that just kind of just occurred to something, like, like, like accidental damage that wasn't through negligence. That's what it appears to me. I, I can't be sure. You'll have to check with them. But like, let's let's say you buy a new computer and um, like a new laptop, and and uh, yeah, let's say it just falls on the ground. It it's, it's, it slips off your lap and falls off the ground and, and hits the ground. You, you, that may be covered. Now, if it's more than ninety days, you're screwed. But if it's in the first ninety days and, and something happens, it looks like they cover any kind of just accidental damage or even damage on purpose by others. Like or somebody's committing a crime against you and damages your property, such as or, or, or steals it. Like if someone steals it, if someone comes over and vandalizes it. But if I, like if it uh, if it fell off your lap or something, or uh, you know your your, your dog uh, knocks it off the uh, knocks it off the table, 
when trying to your, – your dog sees some food you left next to the computer and, and the exuberance to, to grab the food you left, uh, the dog knocks the computer off the table and it falls and, and, and breaks. I, I believe things like this they'll cover. And all you have to do is call up the number and ask, which is uh, – I can give you the number. It's, it's 800-553-4820. You know what? I have an idea. Let's do better than just talk about calling them. Let's actually call up. Thank you for calling Card Benefit Services. For benefits information, press 1. To file a new claim, 2. Check the status of an existing claim, 3. Other questions, 4. To repeat, one moment please. Thank you for calling Card Benefit Services. Calls may be monitored or recorded for quality and customer service purposes. My name is Ashley. My please have your card number or your claim number. Well, I don't got none of that. My, my name is Dwight Thornwood, and I just got myself here some uh, general questions about uh, this here insurance you all have. Okay, well, I would need the 16-digit credit card number in order to see your benefits that you have on your card, sir. So you're telling me that it depends on which, uh, which here, uh, Visa card I got and what kind of benefits I have? No, it all, each card is loaded differently depending on the bank, um, so I wouldn't be able to know. There, it's not like all Visa cards have the same benefit. Oh, I see. Um, well, it all depends. Every card is loaded differently. Well, I, I don't got my card on me right now. My, my wife, Lurleen, took it on down to, uh, to Walmart, and uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 don't, uh, I don't got that right here at the moment. But if uh, I could just ask you a few questions. I know you can't give me none exact answers, but... Uh, I'm just trying to understand, is this uh, just for things that happen to your stuff? Like if it happens to be outside and, you know, something bad happens to it from an earthquake or whatever, or is, is this also like if something happens to it, like in your house, like you knock something off the table and it breaks? Is it covered then? As far as what? What type of insurance are you talking about? The, the purchase protection there you got on Visa that... Uh, I will- there's a couple different benefits as far as the purchase protection goes, so I wouldn't be able to know which one you had um, because there, there's, a, there's a couple different ones, and that all depends on your credit card. Again, I, I do apologize about that. Um, so I wouldn't be able to tell you because some of them are just if, like, a natural disaster happens, and some of them are cover a lot more. All right. So it, so it actually does depend on the bank. This is by Visa, but it's also dependent on the bank of uh, which ones want to help out more than other ones do. It, I I don't know how they load them on there, so I don't want to say how they do, but it does depend on the bank and how they want to give those benefits out. They give the benefits, we just administer them. Yeah, no, I, I know your company just administers it, but I thought it was just right. I thought it was just Visa wide, like like all Visa, you got you got the same protections. But you're telling me that ain't true. That some banks are doing more no. than others. I can take six of the same cards from the same bank, and every one of them could be loaded differently. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. All right. Well, I'm going to have yes, to have, when, when my wife gets back from Walmart, and uh, provided she didn't run it up to where uh, to where I got to cancel it, I, I'm, I'll call back here with the number, <laughs> and uh, I'll ask the more specific questions so I can know. I, I just want to know if I'm covered. You know, we got a lot of stuff here. We got tornadoes. We got dust storms. And and then we we got my dog who's always jumping up on the table trying to eat anything that even looks like food. So uh, right, know, yeah. So all right, I, I just want to know what benefits I have in case some um, you know bad things befall me. All right, well, thank you very much. You've been on helpful to me, and uh, I'll give you a call back later. Okay, perfect. Thank you, and I want to thank you for calling Car Benefit Services. We are available twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Again, my name is Ashley. Enjoy the rest of the day. All right, thank you. 
Okay, so we learned something. No wonder the documentation I read online was not totally correct. It varies from card to card. So I think the better quality card that you have, and when I say better quality, I mean one that's harder to get. Like a business card is probably going to have better benefits in this sense than just a very standard credit card that everybody can get. So anyway, if you have a Visa, you should call up the number and just give the number out, which Dwight Thornwood couldn't do because you know he doesn't have a credit card because his wife has it. But just call up and give them the information, and they can tell you exactly what's covered and what's not, 800-553-4820. So let's talk about how you file a claim, though, if something were to happen. The documents you need to submit with your claim, and you can do this online, a receipt from the card you used, a statement uh, or photocopy in front of your card showing as you really your card, the itemized store receipt or online receipt of the item you bought. If there's an incident involving a crime, such as uh, a theft or anything else that's a criminal matter, didn't apply to me because you can't criminally charge a rat, but you have to have called the police within 48 hours of the incident, and uh, they may or may not want a copy of your home insurance declaration page to show that this is something that your home insurance doesn't cover because if the your home insurance covers it then they're not going to pay it they didn't ask me for that and then photos of the damage but yeah it worked for me now would i do this for something that was like 30 bucks no it'd be too much hassle even for someone as cheap as me it it was just the process was not super fast in fact it took months because of delay on both their end and my end and even the time i spent on it was not minimal there was time I spent on this that uh, wasn't like nothing, but was it worth getting 1800 something dollars back? Yes. Would I do this for an item that's like 200 Yes, especially now that I, I know how to do it faster. Would I do it for something like 30 Probably not. But it's something useful to know, and it worked for me. If you got any questions, you can text me 775-372-8355. Okay, so let's say you're an NFL player, and you've got a guaranteed contract. And you're injured. So you're still being paid. You just can't play football at the moment. Let's say you play for the Arizona Cardinals. Or you should be playing for them, but you're on the injured list. But you also like gambling. What do you do? Well, since you're not playing, do you think, well, okay, I guess it's fine to bet on the NFL if I'm not actively playing. And in fact, if I'm not actively playing and can't affect the game... You know, maybe it's okay for me to bet against my own team? Yeah, I think I'll do that. And I think I'll do that in a licensed and regulated sports book in Nevada because there's no chance that that would ever get back to the NFL and get my contract invalidated, would it? <laughs> well, that's what happened involving Josh Shaw who is a player for the Arizona Cardinals, an NFL team. On November 10th, 2019, he was at Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, and decided that he wanted to make a parlay bet. A parlay bet is a bet on several teams at once where every single bet has to win for you to win the bet. And obviously, since there's long odds of all these different bets winning together, where if even one of them loses, you lose the whole ticket, uh, if, if everything hits on a parlay, then you get paid pretty well. So he made a parlay bet, and one of the games in the parlay was a halftime bet on 
the Tampa Bay Buccaneers against the Arizona Cardinals, his team, where he bet on the Buccaneers. So he actually bet on his own team. Or he bet against his own team. Sorry, he bet against his own team at halftime. He wasn't in the game. He wasn't even there at the game. He was in Las Vegas. But it was still his team, and he was betting against his team. Now, in case you're wondering, the NFL expressly forbids betting on any NFL games, whether it involves your team or not. But this this is the worst, where he actually bet against his own team. You may ask, well, why would that matter? Like, Why does the NFL care if you're not in the game, if you're on the injured list, about who you bet on? Because you can't influence it if you're not there in the game. Well, because, number one, you may have inside knowledge or information about the game you're betting on, especially if it's if you if you bet on anything in the NFL, you could have inside knowledge, but especially if it's your own team, you may have knowledge about things on your team that would make your team either more likely or less likely to win the game than other people would have, even if you're not playing in the game. And and just in general, they just don't want their players betting on the outcome of games in the league. It's just a very bad look. So it's something that is not allowed that they've been very clear to all players it's not allowed. And somehow he did anyway. And he did this at Caesars. And you might wonder how this came out. And by the way, I don't know how much he bet. But you might wonder how this got found out so quickly. We're talking about something on November 10th. How, how did they know so quickly? Well, Caesars reported him as required by Nevada law. It turns out that Nevada gaming requires all casinos to report anything like this that they see, where anyone who is betting on a game in violation of the law needs to be reported. And so Caesars reported this to Nevada Gaming as soon as they found out that he was placing this bet. Now, how did they know it was him? Did they recognize him? How did they know it was him betting on his own team? Were, there like, were these people... Big NFL fans or, or Arizona Cardinals fans who recognized him. And Josh Shaw is a pretty common name, so that wouldn't necessarily give away who he is. Well, he gave a very, very big clue as to who he was because he was establishing a betting account. Now, I don't know what type of betting account there. It may have been to be able to bet using the app because you can use an app at Caesars to bet on any game that they are offering Within the state of Nevada, you can use that app. You don't have to. You don't have to be at the sports book. And when you sign up for that, you do have to fill out this whole application. So, in the space to write what his profession is, he actually put down professional football player. <laughs> Not even trying to hide it. So yeah, like a betting account? Okay, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a professional football player. Okay. Yeah, and I'd like to place a bet on this football game. Okay. And and I see you're from Arizona, right? Yep. You're betting against the Arizona Cardinals, right? Yep. Okay, no problem here. Uh, one second, please. So he's going to make a, a phone call to someone who is, is not the gaming commission. I mean, it's crazy. So he got suspended. For this, and when he gets suspended, what that means is that uh, he doesn't get paid. So he hasn't been actually uh, released yet, to my knowledge, uh, or he hasn't had his contract. If you get released, he'll get paid. He hasn't had his contract invalidated yet, to my knowledge, but he has been suspended 
for violating the league's gambling policy. And that means he will not be paid during the suspension. How long is the suspension? I don't know how long it's ultimately going to be, but at the moment he's been suspended throughout the entire 2019 season and the entire 2020 season. So it's at least two seasons he's going to be suspended and not paid. I have to imagine anything he's already been paid, he gets to keep. But uh, from the beginning of the suspension all the way through the end of the 2020 season, he will not be paid. It's possible that uh, he will not be paid after that as well. I'm not sure how long his contract lasts until. But that's a pretty crazy story. He didn't even try to hide it. It's not like he sent a friend to go bet for him or he was trying to bet through a private bookie. He goes right into Caesars and, and, and bets and sets up a betting account. I mean, if he just walked in there and put cash down at the counter, they probably wouldn't have known who he was. He's not, like, super famous. But it's not like Tom Brady going to place a bet. I mean, this is Josh Shaw, an, an injured player on the Cardinals. But he, he, he establishes a betting account and actually puts down professional football player. And Commissioner Roger Goodell of the NFL said, if you work in the NFL in any capacity, you may not bet on NFL football. The regulations that cause Caesars to have to report him require sports books to, quote, take reasonable steps to avoid accepting or paying any wagers made on or by or behalf of an official owner, coach, or participant of any event involved with a bet. And they actually made that rule in 2001. So first, Caesars contacted Nevada Gaming right after they received this bet from him, and then they contacted the NFL, too. So that's really made to prevent any kind of insider betting. So not only is it illegal, but they are Caesars or whatever book is taking the bet is required to report this if they discover it. And they can get in trouble for not doing so. It's really dumb. And I don't know how much his contract was, but he's going to lose a lot of money out of this. Some people are uh, trying to claim, well, Maybe he was doing this on purpose to just get out of the contract and, and be done because uh, he's not going to play it all this year. And he may figure his career is probably done. But that, that would be incredibly stupid because he still owed the money. If, if you're owed the money on your contract, it doesn't matter if you're injured. You still get paid in the NFL. So he's just throwing away free money. He's getting paid not to play. And now he's not anymore. Now he's getting nothing. Let's see if I can look up his contract. I see it says he appealed his uh, suspension. It says that uh, he, he had a one-year contract worth up to uh, $895,000 being 800000 base and 95000 in bonuses 
and Arizona only has four games remaining in the season after this suspension was handed down. So this would cost him uh, probably about $190,000 or so. And I don't know about maybe the bonuses too. But uh, probably around 200000 is going to cost him. Plus he won't be able to pay, get paid next year. Like he can't just go. Uh, he only had a one-year contract. So the Cardinals didn't have to keep him after this year, which I'm sure they won't. But in 2020, now he won't be eligible to sign a contract and get any money. He's going to just be out of the le- out of the league next year, no matter what, unless he wins his appeal. Has anyone else been suspended from the NFL for gambling? Yes, but not recently. The last one to be suspended for gambling was Art Schlichter of the Baltimore Colts in 1982. Um, or actually, he got suspended for the entire 1983 season. I'm not sure if it was for an incident in 82 or 83, but for the entire 83 season, he was suspended. He was allowed to return in 84, but he only played for two years. He played in 84 and 85 before being out of the NFL for good. So that really derailed his career, even though he was a first-round pick in 1982. This is someone who really was seen to have a great future in the NFL and ended up only playing two years after first uh, being suspended for the entire 83 season and then played only two more years. So this is going to be a lot of trouble for Josh Shaw, Josh Shaw had been playing for five years. He's not a major player. Obviously, if he was a top player, he would be getting more than 800000 base salary, but still going to be costly. It looks like it's probably the end of his career. Very weird. And he is the same one that at SC... Remember, he was, like, jumping off the balcony. He was jumping into a pool or something. Or he, or he said he hurt his leg doing something, and then maybe it turned out he was like trying to jump off. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. That's right. That's, that's a good memory. Yes. So, um, the, the, he he. What happened was uh, he made up a story about um, that he had injured himself trying to save a seven-year-old drowning in an apartment pool in Palmdale at a family function. So uh, he got hurt some other way, and he figured that since he really was at a party in Palmdale, and there really is a pool there, it was his sister's apartment, that he figured that nobody else would know, that they couldn't disprove it. So at the time, he actually said, I didn't think it could be proved that the story was not true. My sister was having a party. My cousin does have a balcony over his pool. It involved only myself, my sister, two or three little kids, and my cousin. So he thought that uh, he would be able to fabricate that when, uh, in reality, he had uh, jumped off his balcony like during some kind of argument he had. I think he had an argument with his girlfriend or something like that, and he uh, he, he jumped over the balcony. He jumped off the balcony at one point and, and then hurt himself. So he changed that to, I jumped into a pool to, to rescue a seven-year-old who fell in. 
Right. And then I think at the time it was like they were like, oh, this guy's a hero. And there was all this news coverage around it that just like magnified the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. I forgot it was the same guy. Yeah. Do you remember how this came out? I remember how – how was it figured out that he wasn't telling the truth? Well, because I think there was the news coverage that they saved the kid. And then I think probably – I would assume as the reporter started digging into it, where's the kid? Oh, okay, okay. Saved. Yeah, yeah. That type of thing. That uh, – I'm actually surprised he actually – had an NFL career after that, but he did. But this is probably going to be the end of it. <laughs> First, he lies about how he injures himself by making a story about saving a, saving a kid in the pool, and then he gambles against his own team when he's injured. Crazy. Well, some of these athletes, not very smart. 775-FRAUD55, if you want to call in or text, 775-372-8355 about anything we're talking about or anything else. Clay Thompson. Let's talk about another athlete, except not one who's getting his contract invalidated, even though he is injured, just like uh, Josh Shaw is. Clay Thompson, uh, one of the reasons the Golden State Warriors, who were dominated for so many years, are terrible. Uh, Clay Thompson apparently is a big poker fish to the point where even in the Golden State Warriors team game on the airplane, he was a fish. That's not exactly an all-star lineup. But apparently even there, he was a fish. So Clay Thompson talked about uh, how when he was uh, making less money than he is now, because he's, he's making huge money these days. But when he first got into the league, he was making decent money, but not... Uh, not the type of, of huge money. So far, he's made uh, $78 million in the NBA. But before he signed the uh, the huge contract, the $190 million max contract he signed, uh, he was getting paid about uh, $35,000 a month. And to him, that was still a lot of money at the time. And... Uh, he was having a hard time holding on to the money he was making. I mean, he was getting 35 K a month, which for most people is a lot. <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty nice salary for most people. But this is what Clay Thompson said about chunking off a lot of it in poker. He said, what also would kill me for a while was the team poker game. We had some sharks on the team. I have, a, I have to doubt that, that anyone on the Golden State Warriors is a great poker player, but it's all relative. If you're the best player out of nine players at the table, you are the shark, even if overall you kind of suck. He said, there, we had some sharks on the team. Every road trip on the, plane, uh, on the plane, it's a great way to build camaraderie. But it's tough to do on your rookie deal, especially when you're playing guys who have been in the league for eight, nine years. But that competitive drive comes in, especially with poker. It's such an emotional game. If I got to buy into more than once where I have to tell my financial advisor what happened, it's not good. It's like getting brought into the principal's office. So I guess I, – I, I don't know. He had a financial advisor at that point, I guess because he thought he'd eventually make money one day. I don't know. But uh, but I guess he had – whoever was managing his money he had to say, oh, you know that money you thought I had, the 35000 I just got paid? No, I actually don't have it. Uh, I just lost it in a poker game. He also wasted money on clothing. 
He bought a lot of expensive clothing, uh, most of which he didn't wear. He said, I made some mistakes, like hoarding, especially with the clothes. I would have a full closet, and I'd only wear about 5% of the closet. And I'm like, what am I going to do with all these extra clothes, man? I had these hoarder, hoarding tendencies I had to get rid of. It took some time. So, Clay Thompson, uh, apparently a, a poker fish. Now, this doesn't mean he's not a fish anymore. He has even more money to lose. you think he'd be a bigger fish now that he has so much money. Now, whatever he was losing on these playing poker games probably doesn't uh, phase him. Maybe that's the difference. Maybe he's still losing uh, uh, the same amount of money, but he has so much, it's, it's just a small dent. Where back when he was only making 35 k a month, that was a problem. But that, that's pretty sad to, to be the, the poker fish among what's probably mostly poker fish. NBA players are not likely to be very good poker players. They just simply would not have had time to get good. They're they're really concentrating on basketball and their careers. These are not uh, people who have time to sit in card rooms all day and night or online or whatever and, and grind poker. And yeah, there, there may be a few that have a, a natural ability at the game to where they can at least be decent. I'm not going to say everyone's terrible, but the... He says there's some sharks in the game. I, I have to think if you put a, a pretty good player in the game, not even a great player, but a pretty good player, they would just crush that game, provided they had the bankroll. I don't know how high this game plays. It might be something that's too big for a lot of people, in which case uh, that can be a disadvantage. You, know, you have to be able to afford the stakes you're playing at or you don't play optimally, or you, or you can't fade variants. But Clay Thompson, apparently, uh, the, the biggest problem he had with his earlier contract when he wasn't making the huge money was that he'd shoot off a lot of it on the plane, playing poker. I wonder who the big winner is in that game. Who is the shark of the Golden State Warriors poker game? Or let's, let's go back to like last year's Golden State Warriors when Durant was there, too. Like Who, who was the shark there? I don't know. I mean, it could be someone. It could be one of the minor players. Like maybe your mind will go to, oh, maybe it was Kevin Durant, maybe it was Stephen Steph Curry, but it, it could easily be just one of these minor reserve players on the team who just happens to be a better poker player. Just because you're the best basketball player doesn't mean you'll be the best poker player. But I guess we know who one of the worst one was. Now he he hasn't said he improved. That's the funny thing. It's not like he said, oh well, well I'm way better now. He's he's just talking about when he was on his rookie deal that he was having a hard time with the losses. So it, it kind of sounds to me like he might still be losing. It just doesn't matter. A lot of athletes actually have big gambling problems in general. And some of the problem is that uh, they have all this money rolling in, and even though they know it won't last forever, even they know that they'll get in their late 30s or 40s and their career is going to be over, and at best they can get like a coaching job at uh, – a fraction of the money, or maybe if they're really lucky, they can be like a Charles Barkley type and get a lot of money doing endorsements or or a commentary. But that's only a small percentage of players and usually only ones who are very well-known to begin with. And you have to have a certain personality type that is, that people find appealing to where you'll get paid good money for that. So for most athletes, you're not making all that much money or any money after your career is over. And yet, when your career's over, you have a long time left to live. So you have to manage the money. And with, with all the money they make, it shouldn't be that hard, but unfortunately it is. They just they just adjust to whatever they're making, and they just go, okay, I can spend this much now. 
it's not even like, well, I can spend more and I can live well, but I'm going to save a lot of it. It was just like, oh, okay, well, I, I'm making now uh, a thousand times what I made before. Okay, now I can spend a thousand times what I had before. That, that, that's the way a lot of them see it. I can understand if you're making the big money like Clay Thompson is now to where playing like kind of a fairly high-stakes poker game and not super high to where no matter what you lose, it's not going to really hurt you. Okay, fine. If that's what everyone on the team's doing and everyone's having fun with it, fine. Don't, don't be the spoil sport just because you're trying to be cheap even if you're one of the fish in the game. I, I can understand that, but some of these athletes have a really, really, really bad gambling problem. And they'll go to Vegas and just bet insane amounts of money, and they don't learn the games very well either. Like, they'll go play blackjack, and they won't even learn basic strategy. So the casinos love it when athletes show up. They love it. Much like poker players love it when anyone shows up in the game whose money was made in some other way besides poker. And isn't known to be a good poker player. Just someone who's famous or rich that got their money in some other ways. Uh, Just basically when a rich guy shows up in the game who isn't known to be a good poker player already, you're you're happy to see him. Because you figure, okay, this guy isn't very good. He just wants to gamble and he's not going to care if he loses money. And that's, that's what players love to see. That's what casinos love to see too. But it's a mistake, and I've always said there's no amount of money that one can have to where you can't waste it all. Really. Even even the richest man in the world, like Jeff Bezos, you, you, you can't... You can still waste it all. Even with billions, even with many billions, you can waste it all if, if spent unwisely, through unwise investments or whatever. There, there's always ways to waste all your money. Because there's always more and more things you can buy and invest in at a greater and greater scale and you make enough dumb or reckless decisions, you'll be broke. And that's how it happens. That's why when you see movie stars or athletes who made so much money and then they're broke, you go, oh my god, how could that happen? If I made if I made uh, one one-hundredth of what they make, I would be set. How could they have lost it all? But they find a way. And a lot of it is just not being able to adjust. And you have to be able to find a way to adjust your lifestyle up while not being wasteful. Except with small things, you can be wasteful. Though the problem is it's very hard to be wasteful on small things and not big things. And that's what a lot of people don't understand either. A lot of it's a mindset. And once you break the mindset, it's a tough thing to just use selectively. So it, it would seem on the surface, okay, I'm just going to care about getting a good deal with big things and not wasting my money on big things and small things, I'm just going to waste it and just spend how I want. But it's it, it's very hard for a human being to do. It starts to bleed into the bigger things too once you have a wasteful attitude about smaller things. So that's why in general you just need to take a, a responsible view of how you spend money. And also there's the factor of things adding up or things that seem like they're not that big. You, you do the same thing, same wasteful thing over and over and over over a period of time and now you've wasted a lot of money. You just have to think before you buy something, do I need it? If it's nothing I need, if it's something that I'll find useful or I'll enjoy, you know, how much, how, how much is it? And in this business idea that's being pitched to me, Am I being realistic about it or just listening to a, an aggressive sales pitch? Also, 
are you really getting a good deal? Could you get a, a better deal if you if you do it a different way? I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but different attitudes people can have about money, and it really affects how much money they hold on to. And there's it's similar to poker, where the most successful poker players, putting aside the ones who already have a big bankroll and are invited to the private games, like the Toby, Toby McGuire types, I'm not talking about that, but for the, the typical poker player who doesn't have those opportunities. The ones that are the most successful are the ones who engage in game selection and the ones who engage in smart financial practices and bankroll management. Those are the ones who ultimately make the most money. And they're not always the best players. They're just good players who are otherwise responsible. All right, let's move on here. Daniel Negreanu, a guy who definitely has made money in poker, a lot of it through endorsements, a lot of it through plays. He's, he's definitely done very well for himself in, in po- poker or things associated with poker. He is now raising money for someone else that he apparently believes in. And I, I didn't even know that Daniel Negreanu was a fan of this guy. But he likes this guy so much that he is holding a special tournament in Las Vegas on December 15th. The event is going to be a $2,800 buy-in tournament. And a number of pros have already said they're going to play. And it's a fundraiser. It's not a regular tournament. There are numerous prizes, including a luxury yacht experience. And the fundraiser is for a political candidate... That candidate is not one who's currently leading in the polls, but one who I guess is still hopeful. The candidate he's raising the money for is Andrew Yang. So Andrew Yang is really known as the $1,000 guy. That's his gimmick, is I'm going to put $1,000 in the pocket every month for every American. I assume every American adult. Just everybody gets $1,000 a month. That means every married couple, or just any couple, married or not, will get $2,000 a month, which is 24000 a year. He calls that the Freedom Fund. It's just money the government gives you to spend how you want. Now, this is more of a form of universal basic income, where you just get money for existing. And... It's often touted as a way to fight poverty, that even if you have no other income, you can count on that at minimum every month to help you get by. And it sounds great until you think, well, the money has to come from somewhere. Who does it come from? Well, it comes from the government. Who funds the government? The taxpayers. Who's paying taxes? Well, those who are working, those who own companies, those that buy things. I'm not sure specifically which tax revenue is going to be funding this. I'm not sure if he ever said that himself, but but uh, the problem is whenever money is taken from one group of people and then given to another, you have to stop and ask yourself, why? Why should this happen? Why should this money be transferred from those who are paying these taxes to those receiving it for the government? And if, if, with Andrew Yang, it just kind of seems like, well just because that, that'll help people out. Which sounds good if the money were to come from the air, but since this money is coming from others to be paid out, there's a question of fairness of, 
why should there be additional taxes levied, taxes levied upon people who are working or people who own companies and, and are producing things and are working hard? Why should some of their money be taken and just handed to people for existing? It's one thing if you're uh, disabled and can't work. But it's another just if for existing you get money. So this is one of these things that sounds good until you think about it. And I know there are... uh, There's been some experimentation of this in Europe, in parts of Europe. And I don't want to get into a whole universal basic income uh, discussion, but I think it's a very bad idea. But anyway, that's Andrew Yang's big thing, is that he wants to give this $1,000 to every American every month. Yang... I don't know how he even heard about this issue. From my knowledge, he wasn't a poker player or anything before running for president. But Yang tweeted out at some point that they need to legalize online poker at a federal level. Which we talked about on this show, and it's one of these things that, again, sounds good until you think about it. You can't just legalize it on a federal level because that's an interference of states' rights. You, you can't just force states to allow gambling within their borders. Gambling has been something that's always been legal in the U.S. and then left left up to the states and the localities whether they want it. So if you look at online poker, right now it is federally legal. Right now you actually can have online poker legal in the U.S. and we do in Nevada, in Delaware, in New Jersey, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Just other states have not legalized it yet. And these states can even combine and cooperate and share player pools. So it can even cross state lines. The only thing the federal government's restricting right now with online poker is that uh, states that have not opted in and basically set up their own regulations for it don't have it. And the federal government will not force this into any state that doesn't want it at the moment. And that's right now every state except for those four. So I don't know what he thinks he's doing. Does he think he's just going to force this onto the states? If Utah doesn't want gambling, if Hawaii doesn't want gambling, you think it's just going to be forced on them? It, it won't. That he's he's he doesn't fully understand what he's talking about. Is the problem? He just someone got his ear about this. Maybe it was even Negranu, and he came out with this statement that. Uh, Online poker needs to be legalized in all uh, federally, which it already is. It's just it's legalized federally, but it's something that the states uh, have to opt into. And I, I don't think uh, Andrew Yang fully understands that. Basically, it was one tweet. But anyway, Daniel Negreanu is going to be co-hosting this tournament. And it's going to be a fundraiser for Andrew Yang. Uh, He's going to be joined by Katie Calvode and Lena Evans. The poker tournament is going to take place at the Las Vegas Mosaic Theater. It's not even at a casino. And uh, there's going to be a cocktail reception from 6 to 8 p.m. Then the tournament will begin at 8 p.m. and run to 10 p.m. That sounds like a great structure. A two-hour tournament. How do they know it's going to be over by 10? 
I think that's a mistake. They can try to make it over by 10, but I hope that they're like not kicked out of the room at 10. They, they'll have the same disaster they had at the Playboy Mansion where the tournament wasn't over, and then they screw people out of it. Like poor Terrence Chan got screwed out of the seat that way by Joy Miller, if you guys remember that. The only people who can play into that in that poker tournament, that charity poker tournament, not charity, the fundraising poker tournament, will be those that buy the $2,800 ticket to the event itself. Uh, among people who have said they will participate, Jeff Madsen, Antonio Esfandiari, and Dutch Boyd. As far as the poker tournament goes, you can uh, get to sp- – one of the prizes is you can spend time on the Singularity Yacht. I wonder if it's – is that Andrew Yang's yacht? And have private poker experiences with former WSOP winners – and then also you can have a VIP experience with world-renowned DJ Steve Aoki. So it sounds like what they're doing here is they are just giving away prizes. It looks like this tournament is not for money, and that's probably why they can play it legally in a non-casino environment. Or it's just you're buying a ticket to the event, the $2,800 fundraiser for Yang, and then while you're there you can play basically a free tournament for prizes. The goal of the fundraiser is basically to try to finally get Andrew Yang some money to continue uh, running. He's Joe Biden has collected uh, $15.7 million already, and Bernie Sanders $28 million worth of donations. Yang, he's done okay. He has about $10 million in campaign donations, but not only is he lagging behind people like Biden and Sanders in donations, but he's also uh, lagging way behind in the polls. Yang's not going to be the candidate. Like him or hate him, he's not going to be the candidate. It's pretty set in stone at this point that only certain people really have a realistic shot. We're talking about Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Pete Buttigieg. They're really the only four who have a shot here, if you want to be honest. I'm talking about from the Democratic side. One of those four... He's almost certainly going to be the winner and face Trump. Uh, Forget about Bloomberg. He's entered too late. Forget about Hillary. She hasn't even entered yet. and may not. But it's too late. It is too late at this point. And the reason it's too late at this point, I've said this before, is that people are much more invested in this whole primary process early on these days than they used to be. Because of social media, there's just a lot more exposure of the primary season than there used to be. There's a much more accessibility to stories. You used to be able to get a brief story on the 11 o'clock news and, and maybe read something in the newspaper and that's it. Here you you can sit all day and, and read things about all the different candidates running for the Democratic uh, nomination. So as social media becomes more and more ingrained in people's lives, you become so much more exposed to these candidates early on, and a lot of people just kind of make up their mind and mostly settle on one candidate they're going to support. Yeah, there's some who can switch, some whose minds aren't made up yet, but most people like sticking with their original decision. That's just human nature. So if you've decided you you like Joe Biden the best, and unless Joe Biden really does something to screw up 
And I don't mean just says something stupid like he does all the time, but I mean like really something unbiden like that you wouldn't have expected from him. Uh, you're probably going to still vote for Joe Biden, even if he says stupid things on the campaign trail or, or or says something you don't like or whatever. Like minor things, you're just going to brush off. And 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 to some degree, the same with the other candidates: Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg. And yes, some have been switching around of, of who has more support than others. But and that's you know right now Biden's the front runner. I'm not saying for sure he's going to win, but really those have been the four. More recently, Buttigieg, but he but he was always kind of trending sort of upwards. Everybody else has been kind of stuck in neutral. Everybody else just isn't really getting going. So Yang has been uh, stuck around 3% forever. And at this point in December, he's not going to rocket out of that. What, what's going to come out about uh, Andrew Yang that makes him so exciting and people are going to vote for him? He has one gimmick, giving away $1,000 to every American every month. Okay. And he's not giving it away. It's the government's money. It's having the government give away $1,000 of taxpayer money every month to every American. Okay, you, you've heard of this for months from him. So what's going to change people's minds? Who's, who's going to jump from another candidate to Andrew Yang at this point? Nobody. He has his small percentage of supporters, and that's it. And we've already lost Kamala Harris. She's out. And there's the other candidates, Tulsi Gabbard and Amy Klobuchar, but they're not going anywhere. Tom Steyer, they're, they're all not going anywhere. It's really down to those four. Everybody else who's not in it yet or entered late, it's too late for them. Because too many people have made up their minds. You just don't have enough undecided Democratic voters at this point to really rocket up a candidate from zero or near zero to win. The difference between candidates like Andrew Yang and those in the top four who kind of are are switching positions somewhat are that they already have a lot of support, they just need additional support. So, for example, when people are getting fed up with Elizabeth Warren, as they have been, some of them leave her and, and move over to Buttigieg, who already had some, some support, so he goes up. But if Buttigieg was at zero, then, then he wouldn't be up very high. So you have to have both existing support, people that already are, are, are in your corner for a long time, and then you, you pick up other candidates' support who either drop out or, or fall out of favor. So this is this is a waste of money. If, if, if you really want to go to this, then you should only go just because you think it'll be fun. Andrew Yang really has no chance, nor does his understanding with, of online poker really make any sense. <laughs> He's, n- nothing's going to be different. Don't think that now online poker is going to be available everywhere and that it's going to be the return of old poker star. It's not going to happen. Negranu said he was supportive of Andrew Yang even before Yang said something about online poker. He said, this is just one small part of the equation for me, but if you're someone who wants online poker and he's the most logical and practical person who's, a person who's also centrist, he's not a lefty or righty. He's more in the middle and he's just practical. So that's not true. He's not in the middle. Is he the most left candidate? No, he's not. He's uh, definitely not like uh, Bernie Sanders. He's definitely to the right of Bernie Sanders. But He's not someone who's so centrist that you couldn't even say he's a lefty or righty. He's definitely a lefty. He's just not one of the far lefties. 
the whole thousand dollars a month thing is a, a very leftist concept. Yang has also said that he will make an appearance on Joey Ingram's podcast. He said that in one tweet, but then a date hasn't been set, and that may never happen. He may have just said it to sound good, and then <laughs> doesn't feel like doing it. I'm I'm sure Joey Ingram would love it, but I'm not sure if it's going to happen. But the fundraiser is happening December fifteenth, which is a Sunday. I don't know if we'll see any time in upcoming modern history where a candidate enters at this point or is way, way behind at this point. I'm talking about 11 months before the general election and just a few months before the primary voting begins. I don't think you'll ever see someone enter at this point or be way behind at this point and become the nominee. I just don't think it can happen anymore. I just think there's too much information and too many people who've made up their minds by then. I just don't see it. And Trump is a different story. Trump established the lead early on last time. And he just held the lead. People were expecting that once the gimmick of Trump wore off and people got sick of him, he'd lose support. And that just never happened and he easily won the nomination. That was the only surprise but he did not come on late. He came on very early and was leading the whole way. Once once he really was attempting to run for president, he jumped into the lead and stayed there. If you look back at what happened, that's what occurred. So it's going to be one of those four. And right now I'm actually very happy with my 5-1 to one bet on Biden being the nominee. Because I think he really looks like it's going to be him. With all the dumb things he's been saying and mistakes he's been making, I think it's, still, it's going to be him. Then it will be an interesting election between two old guys who are both known to put their foot in their mouth a lot. Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I guess the one thing that each can't say about the other is uh, look at the dumb things you say. I guess they both can say it and <laughs> just keep pointing at each other. Okay, I want to talk about banks. And if you're a low-limit poker player and you've never taken out a lot of cash from the bank, you probably can't relate to this. But if you have taken out any kind of substantial cash at once, and I mean even anything like uh, $5,000, even $3,000, I'd say like three k or more, especially more than five k. And I'm not talking about when you pass 10K and you have to fill out the CTR form, which stands for Currency Transaction Report Form. I'm talking about where you take out something less than 10000 but like three or more. And I'm not even talking about something that's suspicious, like you go take out uh, $9,999 to avoid the CTR form. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something like, you know, say 5000 where you're clearly not avoiding the CTR form. You're uh, still taking out several thousand. So there was a complaint posted on Twitter today by a woman named Lexi Sterner. Is Lexi Stern? Is Sterner. Lexi Sterner. Her, her name is Lexi Stern for some reason on uh, Twitter. Her, on Twitter, she's Lexi Marie Stern. That's L-E-X-I-M-A-R-I-E-S-T-E-R-N-E. <laughs> so it's like she leaves off the R in Sterner. But she's just on Twitter's Lexi Sterner. If you just Google Lexi Sterner Twitter, you'll probably find her. I first noticed her 
probably around May or June of this year. And at first, I was kind of annoyed by her. She just seemed like one of the several attractive, like, late 20s, early 30s poker females who just try to twit, try to tweet out, like, snarky stuff and get attention that way. Like, um, I'm a pretty girl who's saying something witty, retweet me. And that, that's kind of what looked like she was doing. But as I was reading her material on Twitter, I said, you know, I actually agree with most of the stuff she writes. She is kind of trying to get attention, but isn't everybody on Twitter to some degree, even our president? And then I also found out she's not even a professional poker player. She's actually a nurse with a real job. So I actually had more respect for her when I read that. So I, I don't, I've never met her. I've never spoken to her in any way. Like we've, we've had some public tweets back and forth, but that's about it. We've never messaged privately or spoken or met, but, uh, my opinion about her is fairly high from what I've seen. She's actually been on Twitter, it says, for nine years, but I only noticed her a few months ago. Anyway, this is what she tweeted out today. And boy, this one really resonated with me. Hate banks. Just got treated like a criminal for wanting to take out 8K of my own dollars. Cool interrogation bros. Fuck the man. Well, that got 165 likes and three retweets, one of them being me. So I totally agree with what she said about the banks. 100%. If you walk into a bank and withdraw something like 8K, occasionally they'll just hand you the 8K and say nothing, which is great. But that's not usually what they do. Usually they will ask you intrusive questions, but not like official questions. You'll get things like, hmm, so are you doing anything this weekend? Uh, so so you know, you, you're taking this money out for a trip? So, uh, wow, that's a lot of cash you're taking out. Uh, what, what do you need it for? You'll get things like that. Not like, uh, sir, you need to tell us what you're taking this cash out for. We need to have a record of that. Like It's not, it's not like a business-like question. It's like this phony, I want to make conversation with you and just find out because I'm interested in your life, BS. But but they don't do this as someone taking out 500 bucks. You show up, you take 500 bucks, they go, hmm, so you have a big weekend, eh, what, what's the 500 bucks for? They, they don't do that, they just give you 500 bucks, goodbye. You take out 8,000, they're, they're going to start asking all kinds of questions, but in a, a phony, friendly sense, like they... They just want to know about you. Not for any official capacity. They just like to know. The teller himself would like to know. So then you're in a weird position because you kind of want to say this is none of your business, shut the fuck up, but then you're kind of afraid, you know, maybe they're, they're going to be suspicious and they're going to hold up your withdrawal or maybe they're going to make a needless report about you to the IRS and, and th- that might look bad. Maybe they'll trigger an audit. Like you start saying, maybe I don't want to make waves here. So, then you kind of feel pressured to answer the questions even if you don't have to answer the questions. And I'm sure that's what Lexi Sterner went through when she went to go withdraw her 8K today. Presumably she went to go get 8K out to play poker over the weekend. And they gave her a hard time. She's like, what the fuck? This is my money. I put it in the bank. I want it back out of the bank. Why are you treating me like a criminal? And... I had this experience. A a certain bank was 
acting really strangely, and this wasn't even that long ago, probably about three to four years ago. A certain bank was acting really strangely involving any transaction that was being done. And like when I would go in and withdraw cash, tons of questions about what I'm going to be doing that weekend. Tons of questions what I would be doing the money. Again, not in an official capacity, but where they really would ask a lot of things. Like I'd answer, they'd, go, they'd come up with a follow-up question. Over and over and over. Like Every time I went in, I, I could expect that. And it was annoying, and I kind of just dealt with it. And I kind of wanted to say something, but I, I just said, you know what, I'll just tolerate this, and that's that. Um, what also sucks about answering these questions is that you sometimes don't want to give away private information to these people. Like, okay, let's say you're taking this to go to Vegas for the weekend. Okay. Um, if you tell the truth to the teller, now you've just told someone you're not going to be home for the weekend. They have your address because that's on your bank account. Maybe the teller's going to tell your friend that uh, their friend that your house is empty for the weekend, and now they can break in and steal your stuff. And maybe there's even a lot of cash in your house because you take out a lot of cash. So why why do you have to tell the teller that you're going to be leaving for the weekend? But then if you don't tell the teller you're leaving for a weekend, uh, then they're going to wonder, well, why are you going to be taking out this type of cash just to sit home? Why would you do that? And you're a little afraid to say you're going to be just sitting home with it because maybe you'll have a target on your back that there's all that all that cash in your house. So there's no good way to answer this without giving away private information that could be used against you later by criminals that the teller might know. And I'm not saying all the tellers know criminals, but just like this is none of their business. This is something you just don't want to tell them. And I've had this occur to me many times before. It's very frustrating. It's very awkward. I hate it. I dread going into the bank to take out a lot of cash because I know this is coming and I never know what the right thing to say is. I never know what right answer to give. And the whole thing is something that's very unpleasant for me and every other gambler I know who takes out that kind of money. Anyway, let me tell you why they're doing this. In reality, they're not trying to make conversation. In reality, the, re- the, the reason they're doing this is because they have a requirement called know your customer. And the banks have to find this out or they will be violating the law. It's something called uh, Know Your Customer, a.k.a. KYC. And it's the process of a business verifying the identity of their clients, assessing their suitability, and also assessing any kind of illegal intentions the customers have involving the business relationship. And there are bank regulations and also anti-money laundering regulations which are in place where banks have to comply and if they suspect anything going on, even very moderately suspect anything going on that's illegal, they have to ask some questions and figure it out. And then the bank is supposed to report to the government anything they think is wrong. So basically the bank's being told, you have to know what all your customers are doing on a basic level. You can't just let them 
withdraw cash, 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 and not ask any questions and not tell us about it. Now, they can file reports without telling the customer. They can file what's known as an SAR, a suspicious activity report, which alerts the government that something weird is going on with that customer. But these questions they ask you are part of the know your client or know your customer process and also could be preceding a suspicious activity report if they don't like your answers. Now, just because a bank files a suspicious activity report doesn't mean you're going to be in any trouble. If you're not doing anything wrong, then you won't be in trouble. The It may be a pain in the ass for you, but usually nothing comes of these. Usually the IRS or other government agencies just become aware of this and start looking at you more closely, and then if they don't really see anything that jumps out at them, they just let it go. There's a lot of SARs filed on people which go nowhere. Most of them go nowhere. But the banks are required to ask questions of customers, and they try to do it in a way that seems like it's not intrusive. But unfortunately, it doesn't come off that way. It comes off as being intrusive and as being kind of creepy. They can't say that they're doing this because they're required to, because then that would put the customer on edge that they're being questioned by the bank to provide information to the government, and that defeats the whole point of Know Your Customer, where you're they're trying to find out, is the customer doing something illegal? And if they say, hey, the government requires us to ask you such and such, of course, everybody's going to answer with something that sounds very harmless. So what they're hoping they do here is just make conversation – and then either you're going to accidentally just reveal that you're doing something illegal with it or you'll give an answer that doesn't make any sense and then they'll report that. But if what you say seems to generally make sense and it doesn't seem to be indicative that you're a criminal in any way, they just let it go. But it's unnerving for the customer. Now, are you required to answer these questions? No. You can just say... I don't want to reveal this. This is my money. I would like it. I'm sorry. I don't wish to make any conversation about this. You can, and they can't withhold your money. However, they can go file a suspicious activity report about you. They could file that you're taking out a large sum of cash and refusing to answer any questions that are acting very suspicious. And you really don't want that. So unfortunately, you do have to just kind of tolerate it. Some banks are worse than others with this, just as some casinos are worse than others with this. As I've mentioned before, certain casinos are very hard line about you cashing out anything over like $1,500 and want all this information from you to make sure they count your cash outs that you don't exceed 10000 And other casinos are very lax about it and provided you don't exceed 10000 they don't ask you anything. The expected requirement is kind of in between. It's, it's subjective, so that's why all the Businesses are making their own interpretations on how to follow that law. So some banks are just more aggressive about it than others. But that's what this really is. It's a, it's a know-your-customer procedure, and it's obnoxious, but there's not much you can do. 
And this is just one of those cases where as much as you want to just give him the middle finger and say, this is my money, I've done nothing wrong, F you, come arrest me if you can prove I'm doing anything wrong, kiss my ass and walk out. And and you can do that, but the problem. Well, first of all, if if you're if you're too rude, they could just refuse service to you. They could just say we're we're closing your account, take your money, and go. I haven't heard of that happening with people refusing to answer questions here, but it could. But the bigger concern is that you don't want SARs filed against you to the government because the government can be a pain in the ass if they want to be. If the IRS starts hassling you, like you, who wants to invite that unnecessarily? Especially if you're doing nothing wrong. Like, why invite that just because you feel like being rebellious? So there's sometimes you just have to tolerate it and accept it's just part of life. And that's just what happens if you withdraw several thousand at once. Now, you may wonder is there anything wrong with saying the truth that you're going to take it to gamble or play poker? Answer, no. You can have a gambling problem legally. You can gamble all your money away legally. You can withdraw a million dollars to gamble with. You could withdraw more than a million dollars to gamble with. So, yeah, you could pull out 8K and say that I'm going to Las Vegas or I'm going to a a poker room and I, I like playing games that are high enough stakes to where I need this type of money to play. You can say it. Um, However, I feel that saying too much is never a good idea. In these type of situations, you just want to be general. You don't want to give them too much info because you never know what will spark someone's suspicion, even if there's nothing really suspicious going on. So maybe if you say you you like playing in high-stakes poker games... Uh, they'll take this as, oh, that's that's the way people launder money all the time. Okay, I better report this. So you just say, yeah, I'm going to a casino to gamble. Now, what if you lied to them? Have you committed a crime? No. You're not required to tell bank employees what you're going to do with your own money. This is not like applying for a loan and, and putting down false sources of income or something that, you know, that could defraud the bank. This is you obtaining your own money that they are holding for you, and you have a right to. One thing the bank can't do is just say, we're keeping your money, you can't have it. The only ones who could seize your money would be the government with a warrant. Uh, So you're not required to tell them the truth. These are not law enforcement officers. And... You're not under investigation of any crime. And it's your own money. So you can you can lie all you want. But just make sure if you're telling them something that isn't true, that it doesn't sound outrageous or uh, doesn't bring on more suspicion. Sometimes people just aren't good liars and they sound nervous as they're lying. And if you sound nervous to them, then they may fill out an SAR on you. So that's why you may just want to tell the truth. But if you want to lie, there's nothing's going to happen to you. There's no requirement that you have to make conversation with a teller. And for the reasons I mentioned, maybe you don't want to mention you're going out of town. 
Maybe you don't want to mention what casino you're going to because you're afraid that someone will show up there and mug you on your way in. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. It's just none of their business. Uh, or you could even say it has nothing to do with gambling. You could say you're about to take a trip. Do we for a lot of things. Like, here's a very valid reason to lie to them. Again, you don't need a reason to lie, but let's say here's a very valid reason. Uh, you don't like knowing people knowing that you have a gambling problem. You don't like telling strangers that. So if, if they ask why you're taking out $8,000, I'm taking a trip. Why? Because you don't want strangers knowing you have a gambling problem. But you don't even need these excuses because you're not required to tell them the truth. So they're required to know you, but you're not required to tell them everything regarding withdrawing your own money. They have to ask, but you don't have to tell them the truth about everything. There are certain things you have to tell them the truth about. You can't give them a fake social. But you can't, uh, and if you're going to get a loan, you can't put down uh, phony income sources, as I said. But as far as just getting out your own money, no, you you don't have to tell them the truth of what you're going to do with the money. You also could have changed your mind. You know, maybe, maybe you were going to take it to go take a trip and you decide, no, I'm going to go to Vegas and gamble. Or I'm going to go to Commerce and gamble. You, you can do that. You're not required to do what you told them you're going to do. So my suggestion answering those questions, just say whatever is going to raise the fewest red flags. Because it's none of their business. And it sucks, but that's the way it is. And and keep in mind, for anyone listening here, I'm not advising people who are uh, trying to commit structuring offenses or, or, or people who are trying to take out money for illegal purposes to, on how to mislead the banks. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about people who are taking out money to go legally gamble at licensed card rooms and casinos such as in Las Vegas or such as licensed poker rooms, whatever. You're taking out the money for that reason or let's just say you're just taking the money out to have it. You you just want to have cash in your house. You don't trust banks, whatever. Whatever the reason. As long I'm not advising people to get around being detected for illegal activity. I'm saying if, if you just want your cash for whatever reason the path of least resistance is to tell them whatever is going to sound uh, least alarming. That's all I'm saying. And the whole thing kind of sucks, but that's the way it goes. But that's the reason you're being asked. And there's really no way around it. Provided you're going to withdraw something fairly large. Trader Risk, are you still with us? I'm here, but I'm fading fast. Okay. I, th- I thought we might get to the end of the show before you. This is the second to last uh, topic. But uh, have you been questioned before like this with withdrawing like three or more thousand? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I have. And I think, you know, I think a lot of times, too, in addition to what you spoke about, they're just trying to sell you other services. That might be some of it too, but I just like if I'm transferring the money though, then they don't like if I 
if I say give me a cashier's check for this amount, then they never ask. Oh, so what's the cashier's check for? You know, they they don't then they don't care. It's it's only when it's cash. That's what's and and all these poker right. players report that too. So it's it's obnoxious, but that's that's just the way it is. And um, you know, it's too bad. It's too bad you have to go through all this crap, but that that's just the way it is. And you sometimes have to take the path of leaf resistance, especially when you know you're not doing anything wrong or illegal. That's that's what bothers. So many people. That's what bothers Lexi Sterner. This. this is her own money. She's probably taking it out to go play poker, and they're treating her like a criminal, and it sucks. And I, it reminds me of like I always tell people: don't get the five K chips at Bellagio or other casinos because when you go to redeem them, you just get this terrible interrogation, like you like you're a criminal. And I hate it. But the, like the one thousand dollar chips, they don't do that with. It's a similar situation, and I. I still remember when they I, I played a like hundred two hundred limit hold'em game, pretty big game, for twenty four straight hours. I actually played twenty four straight hours. Then I got a five thousand dollar chip because someone bought chips from me at the table because I was winning at the game, and they bought chips from me and just threw me a five thousand dollar chip known as a flag there because of the coloring of it. So then I, after the session was over, I. Uh, I, I just put the five thousand dollar chip in my pocket, and uh, I, I think I cashed out whatever else I had there. Not not to avoid anything. It was just uh, I put the five thousand in my pocket, and oh no no I, I I know what it was. I did. I didn't cash out any of it. I just so I think someone uh, traded like the chips I had for bigger chips. I think I they, someone gave me some one thousands, and then. Uh, um, I cashed out with like what little I had of the uh, loose chips. I figured I was very tired after 24 hours of play. I figured I'll come back and and do the rest. And again, this wasn't like a structuring thing. Um, I, I came back after I went to sleep, like eight hours later, and I barely cast out anything at all for cash. So I come back there, and the five thousand dollar chip they gave me such a hard time about. They didn't care about the the hundred, or I mean, they didn't care about the thousand dollar chips. But boy, those that five thousand. Where'd you get this? I said I was playing hundred two hundred limit hold'em. There's no hundred one hundred two hundred limit hold'em going right now. I said, well, no, there was uh, about eight hours ago. I went to sleep after it. I, I left the game. I must have broken. We didn't see you here. I go, what do you mean you didn't see me here? I was here for twenty four hours. This is before they had the uh, the players card system, so they didn't uh, they couldn't just look me up there. They said, no, I I was here for several hours during there. I didn't see you. I would have noticed you in the game. I said. Pull up the freaking camera. There's like some manager they brought out to, to question me. And I said, pull up the camera. I was here the entire time. Ask anyone in that game if I was there. I was there. I played it. I got this in the game. Well, boy, was I put through uh, just a lot of really angry, obnoxious questions. And they were sure I was making this up in some way. And I just kept sticking to my guns. Go check the camera. Go ask people in this game. Go ask the regulars. They were all in that game. Ask them if I was there for a very long time. Ask if I was winning in the game. Finally, without apologizing at all, the guy just angrily goes and, and, and hands me the, the, the 5000 dollars cash for it. and and then Or tells the cashier to do so. I don't know. It was many years ago. But... Uh, after that, every time someone wants to trade something for flags, I say no. I say I don't take five thousand dollars chips. And they say, "What? You're afraid it's counterfeit?" I said, "No, I don't want to be treated like a criminal." 
And here I had been there for 24 hours. And they, they were insisting I hadn't been there. And I was thinking, this really sucks. I didn't do anything wrong. You know, like, like some guy was losing and he had a $5,000 chip. And rather than sending a chip runner to go do the whole thing, he just uh, he saw I, I had uh, two racks of uh, $25 chips and said, hey, can I buy those two from you and I'll throw, throw you the 5000 chip? Sure. We did a chip-for-chip chip exchange, which is, uh, is, is totally fine. It's not even like he paid me in chips. We did a, a like exchange in chips, just different denominations. Totally allowed. But that was a whole know-your-customer thing, that, that they, they make a big deal about the 5,000 denomination chips, where they, uh, they don't for the $1,000 and below at Bellagio. So I, I won't take a 5K chip anywhere now. That, that just dissuaded me from ever taking one. I won't take one from other players. I won't take one from the casino. Nothing. So it just sucks. You know, it's one thing if you're doing something wrong or breaking the law and you start getting questions. But when you you, you followed all the rules and you, you're treated like a criminal, it just really sucks. But sometimes making waves just makes it worse for yourself. So you, instead of fighting the system, you just do what you can to not have it screw you. Okay, Troy Daruski, uh I'm going to do the sports betting tips, but if you're, if you're too tired to participate, uh, I won't mind if you drop off. Yeah, I'm going to have to listen to the rest tomorrow. Okay. So have a good night, Troy. Yeah, good night. Thank, thank you for being here, Troy Daruski, and uh, I'll see you next week. Okay, brother. Bye-bye. Trader Ruski, once again, uh, the loyal co-host who's here just about every show, and I appreciate that. So I want to do the last topic about some sports betting tips, but these are actually sports betting non-tips. That is, I'm telling you things not to do regarding the sports betting. And this segment is not aimed at veteran sports bettors who are winners or close to winners. And this is not aimed at people who think that this is going to make them into a winning sports better. This is not some super secret way to bet sports and finally win. So don't mistake this segment to be that. But I'm going to tell you some things not to do. Some things are worse than others here, but these are all mistakes to some degree, and you will lose money if you do these things. Number one, do not bet teasers unless you're following what's known as the Wong teaser formula. The Wong teaser formula only applies to football games and especially NFL games. And it means that uh, there's basically only a few uh, lines you can tease. And you do this by six points. And if it's anything besides these lines, you should never tease the game. The line would have to be plus 1.5, plus 2, plus 2.5, minus 7.5, minus 8, or minus 8.5. That's it. Those are the six possible lines to tease in the NFL. Minus 7.5, minus 8, minus 8.5. Plus 1.5, plus 2, plus 2.5. Those are the best 
values to tease by far because the extra six points you're getting from the teaser, for those of you that don't know, a teaser is something that uh, you're getting six extra points on the bet and you're combining multiple teams in the bet. It's like a parlay, like what I talked about before that Josh Shaw was doing, except it pays less than a parlay because you're getting each point, you're getting six points extra on each event. The, the reason that the these are the good values to tease are because it crosses two lines in the NFL that are often the difference in the game. And then it crosses the three line and the seven line because there's a lot of games in the NFL that finish by exactly seven points difference, you know, like for example, uh, 14 to seven. And there's a lot that finish three points difference, for example, uh, 13 to 10. So if you cross both of those lines, that means now you're getting, uh, you're, you're going to get a win where you would have lost otherwise, where if it, uh, if the game score falls in those ranges. And this has been calculated by a lot of different people, a lot of very smart minds in sports, and it was figured out a long time ago that if you do teasers only like that, and if you get a certain price on them, which you really can't get anymore, then it's actually positive expectation. Now, it's no longer positive expectation because they don't give you the price you need anymore, but if you're going to do teasers, it's got to be only NFL games, and it's got to be minus 1.5, or minus 7.5, minus 8, minus 8.5, plus 1.5, plus 2, or plus 2.5. Anything else, huge disadvantage for you. Huge. Also, don't ever tease totals. Don't say, well, okay, the I, I want to tease uh, over 34 to be over 28. No. Teasing totals, terrible idea. It's a huge sucker bet. Uh, speaking of totals, if the game total is very high, you should not tease even if those lines I'm talking about are the lines of the game. Why shouldn't you? Because this has been analyzed by very smart minds in sports betting, and it has been found that teasers are generally a big sucker bet. A big, big sucker bet, unless you stick to exactly what I talked about there. So what's the best advice with teasers? It's really just don't do them. Because you're going to have a hard time sticking to just that. In fact, sometimes it's hard to find a few games with uh, those exact lines in one week. And you're going to be tempted to tease other things. And it's really, really a big mistake because you're really, really putting the odds much more in the house's favor than otherwise they would be. But you may say, but I kind of like that. I kind of like picking four different games and betting on all of them together and and getting paid if if I hit all four. Well, okay, that's what parlays are for. Then do a parlay. You may say, but I, but I hate parlays because I don't get the extra points and they only hit once in a while. Yes, but you also get paid way more than a teaser. A teaser pays you far less than a parlay does because you're getting those extra points. So if you really have a feeling about four different games, then do a parlay on the four games. And if you're right on all four games, you're going to get paid very well. So do parlays, not teases. If you're going to do teases, if you have to do teases, make sure it's one of those spreads and make sure it's only the NFL. Otherwise, you're going to get killed. And don't say, oh, Drift doesn't know what he's talking about. I've gotten lucky with teasers. I've done well with them. No. You are so far uh, an underdog there compared to the casino there, you're going to get crushed. Even if you get lucky for a short time, you're going to get crushed doing those teasers. Complete waste of money. So don't do those teasers. In fact... For the most part, don't do any teasers. It's been a long time since I've done any teasers because the price required to get a positive expectation teaser bet down 
is really not there anymore in any books. Okay, next tip regarding sports betting of what not to do. If a game appears to be too good to be true, if the line on the game just seems nonsensical to where you just can't imagine why this really good team playing a team that's mediocre and bad or bad is barely favored, even though there's no injuries involved, you're not being given free money by the sports book. The reason is because it's a trap. It's a trap. And I call the trap, I call these Trapper John MD picks. Remember Trapper John MD? From MASH, and then he had his own show. Pernell Roberts. You don't want a Trapper John MD pick. That's my term, by the way. It's not an official term of sports betting. A Trapper John MD pick is what I just said. Something that looks like it's an obvious pick on the better team. So if a great team is just a tiny bit favored or maybe even an underdog against the worst team, and it just seems so obvious to pick the better team, because why not? They're so much better, and they're only favored by two points. How could you not? Well, there's a reason for that. And the reason is to trap you. Because the typical sports better is going to be mesmerized by getting the much better team at what appears to be a very good price. And then when it loses, they will wonder what went wrong. So don't fall for Trapper John picks. It's very easy to see what is a Trapper John pick. And that is, again, a team that is the better team that for whatever reason facing a mediocre team or even a bad team and is either an underdog or barely favored and you just can't for the life of you understand it. When you see that, either bet the other way, bet on the worst team, or just stay away from the game. Do not be excited by these Trapper John lines because uh, when I see them, I love them because I go the other way. If I, if I look at the game and, and it's just... Every sign seems like they're trying to push everybody towards the the better team there. I go with the other way. I call it a, a reverse Trapper John pick, meaning I'm picking the other side of what they're trying to make me pick. So don't watch out for the Trapper John picks. Next. When a star has been injured and is coming back, you may be excited and may want to finally bet on that team that has been without their star player for some time. Well, you should resist that, and in fact, in many cases, you should bet against that team, especially if it's a game that is, if it's a sport where one player has a tremendous impact, such as NBA basketball. NBA basketball, the a few stars are huge. Look, look at how the Lakers have turned it around. Look, look at how different the Lakers are this year versus last year, simply because they have uh, Anthony Davis now. They have him and LeBron together. Last year, LeBron himself wasn't enough. They have Davis and LeBron. Look what they're doing now. So look, look what happened to the Warriors when they lose the, their three best players, one through it, through going to a different team, two of them getting injured, and, and now they're a horrendous team. So especially in sports like the NBA where 
the very best players make such an impact. When that player is injured and comes back, as tempting as it is to bet on that team now, what you should assume is that when the player comes back, that number one, he's going to be rusty, and number two, the team is going to have a hard time adjusting to him being back. Now, if he's only gone one game, that's a different story. I'm saying that a player who's been gone for two weeks and comes back, the team is going to have a hard time adjusting back to his return, and he's probably not going to play very well. So if you're going to bet on that game, you're probably going to want to bet on the other side. I got screwed by that this past week where uh, Kyle Lowry was coming back for the Toronto Raptors, and had I known he was coming back, I wouldn't have bet on them, but I bet on them because he was listed as doubtful. I mean, that's not why I bet on them, but but that was the reason I didn't stay away from that bet or bet on the other side is because Lowry was, was listed as doubtful for that game, so I didn't really worry about it. But then after I placed the bet, lo and behold, guess who's coming back? Kyle Lowry. And he shot two for 18, and he missed all 11 three-pointers that he attempted to shoot. I think I could have done better. Needless to say, my pick did not win. Came closer than I thought it would, but uh, it did not win. So when you see a star is coming back, especially in a sport like the NBA, after a long or semi-long absence, either don't bet on them or try to fade the team that's getting their star back. Another thing you should not do in sports betting is fall in love with favorites. It's very easy to just fire on the team that you know is good, either on a big favorite line like minus 450, which means you'd have to bet $450 to win 100, or take a a huge point spread like an NBA team where you're taking a minus 17. The team has to win by more than 17 points for you to win the bet and 17 points for you to tie the bet. So it's a lot of people who are amateur sports bettors just hate betting on underdogs, especially big underdogs. Even if you see a 17-point spread, you say, well, you know, it's 17 points. Uh, I, even if I'm getting 17 points, I don't want to bet on this horrible team. Now, I'm not saying it's always correct to just fire on the underdog, because it's not. But what I'm saying here is that if you just bet big favorites because they're a good team, and you just stick to the good teams and just stick to favorites, you're going to lose. This is because built into a lot of lines is the fact that the general public is biased to bet for the good teams. So therefore, if they think they're going to get a lot of bet on the good teams, they're going to give a worse line. And if you just stick to those type of favorites, you're going to lose. Now, you can win betting on favorites, but if you look at what the sharp sports bettors do, you don't see many bets on big favorites. A few, but most of the time they're betting on either small favorites, moderate favorites, or or small under or, or, or underdogs of a lot of types. Sometimes big underdogs, sometimes medium underdogs, sometimes small underdogs. But what you don't see that much of from start sports bettors are big favorites, and that's for a variety of reasons. So if if you're just going to bet on big favorites, you're going to lose in the long run. 
another thing you shouldn't do when betting on sports is buying points. Now, I shouldn't say you should never do it, but typically it's not a smart thing to do, and often you get worse value from buying the points than you really should be getting. So usually you should just avoid the game at all if you feel you have to buy points to feel comfortable with it. Also, a little bit related, but not that much. If you're making a pick on an underdog because you truly believe that the underdog is going to win the game, then don't bet on the point spread. If you really believe that the underdog is going to surprise everybody and just win outright, bet the money line. And some people are too timid with the money line. And for those of you who don't understand the terminology, a money line is where you're just betting on which team wins no matter what. It doesn't matter the points. It just whoever wins, wins the bet. And the point spread is they have to win by a certain number of points, or as long as it, that's if they're a favorite, if they're an underdog, if they lose by less than X number of points, you still win the bet. But if you have an underdog, instead of just getting extra points with the bet, you may want to just do the money line. I'm not saying doing the money line is always or even usually correct, but you have to think about why am I making this underdog pick? And if your belief is that it's going to be a close game, or there's a good chance it'll be a close game, but you think there's a a pretty decent chance that this underdog is not going to be able to pull it out, that they'll kind of hang close, but then eventually uh, just not get all the way through at the end and and lose something pretty close, then the spread pick is the correct way to go. But if you really believe the underdog is going to surprise everyone and win outright, throw the money on the money line. And don't be afraid. Yes, there will be times where you'll wish that you had done the spread. There will be times that you'll have bet on a team that's the the worst of the two teams that's leading the whole way and then at the end just blows it completely and barely loses. And you go, oh, if I only had a spread pick, I would have won this. And instead I had to sweat out the money line and I lost. But then there will be all those other times that you get paid way more than you would have for the spread pick, which is less than even money usually, when you could have been paid more than even money, sometimes way more than even money by doing the money line pick. So think about why you're making your picks and don't just always stick to the spread. If you really believe that the underdog is going to win outright, then just do the money line. Here's another don't for sports betting. Don't only have one online sports book that you use to bet. Why? Because you need to line shop. You need to have a few different sports books that you use online so you can see which one has the best line and then bet on that. And it can make a big difference in the long run. So always make sure you have choices in the lines that you're betting on and always don't be lazy and make sure you're going to every book you have access to. I'm talking about online here. And betting on what is the best line offered. Don't just stick to one sports book and just take the lines they offer. Also, don't only bet on something like uh, Bovada, which is really aimed at amateur sports bettors and will often give 
bad point spreads on things like uh, or bad spreads like in uh, Major League Baseball, where you'll have games like uh, plus one thirty, minus one fifty. What you're looking for is less house juice, and you're not going to see it on a book aimed at amateurs like Bovada. That's not to say that Bovada isn't useful to have, because sometimes they have the better lines and you you want to have their option, and they do pay out, so it's useful to have a Bovada account for sports betting. But you want to have a, a few regular books that offer much better lines, where the house juice is much less. Preferably you want something that has a, a special to where they're charging less juice than the average book. So you want to have books like that and because it really adds up. The more juice that's charged, the more it really adds up. Something else not to do when sports betting, and that is to bet on a book that has a bad payout history. Don't ever say, oh, this won't happen to me or they've always been fine in the past. If you are reading a lot of reviews that a book is having a hard time paying people or even if they're having a hard time paying you but they have believable sounding excuses, don't bet there. Don't put your money on there. Get your money off or don't sign up in the first place and go somewhere that reliably pays you. There's no point in trying to win betting sports if when you win, you will not get paid or they're going to slow pay you to where it takes an eternity to get your money. And if you win any kind of significant money, you'll never get it off. The most important feature of a sports book online is one that will pay you. And there are enough of them out there that do pay you reliably to where you don't have to deal with books that have a bad payout history. So if you go to sportsbookreview.com you can see a list of them that actually pay you out reliably but I can tell you off the top of my head Heritage Sports Five Dimes even though the owner's dead uh, Bet Online Bovada these books all pay you reliably when you win and make sure to stick only with books that pay reliably and make sure you read reviews before signing up to any sports book, no matter how lucrative the bonus seems to be. Some, speaking of bonuses, here's something else not to do. If you have to clear a bonus, which means that if you've earned a bonus, you have to bet a certain amount in order to withdraw the money, or otherwise you forfeit your bonus. If you're trying to clear the rollover for the bonus... Try to bet as much as you can on that sports book without having to take an inferior line. So let's say you have a bonus to clear on Bet Online, and you see a game you want to bet on is uh, minus five, minus one ten. And then at a second book you have the line is also minus five, minus one ten. Well, definitely bet at Bet Online because that's the one with the bonus to clear. I'm not saying if you have to clear a bonus you should take worse lines, but if you're getting a line that's equivalent. Always do it on the book that has the bonus to clear. Another thing that you should avoid doing online, or yeah, online, you should avoid doing it sports betting, is doing too much live betting. Now, live betting can be lucrative if you are good at it. I'm not saying that live betting is bad, and I know of some people who do pretty well live betting, but... 
there is extra juice to live bet. You won't get the same type of juice live betting as you will betting before the game or betting at halftime. And that's because the casino is taking a risk by quickly having to calculate the line that they think is correct at the moment. Now, a lot of times they use services to do this. They're not doing this themselves, but whatever. They, they're, they're doing this on very limited and quick data that they don't have as much time to calculate what they feel is really the correct line. So for that reason, you're paying more juice, so there's more room for error on their part. So you shouldn't really make a habit of betting live unless you really know for sure over a wide sample space that you're really good at it. Now, the occasional live bet is okay. Let's say you really liked a game and then you just didn't get the bet down in time and all you can do is bet live. Okay, bet it live then. I've done that myself. I just did it the other day. But for the most part, figure out what bets you want to make. Make them before game time. And don't do the live betting. Only use live betting for something that is a circumstance in the game that you have a strong feeling about is going to change. Like, uh, let's say one team breaks out to a lead and you say, you know what? I just really don't think this team's going to hold the lead and I can get a pretty good line betting the other way. That's something you can only do live. And sometimes you can do well if you, if you can call those off, you can call those pretty well. So if you're betting live that way, it's fine, but don't use live betting as a substitute for regular betting just because you were too lazy to get the bet down in time. You're going to be throwing away money. And I guess the final tip I have to give you as far as uh, sports betting, well, actually, no, not the final. I have, I have a, maybe one or two more. I didn't write any of these down. I just thought of them earlier. I'm trying to remember. I, sh- I should have written them down, but I didn't. I'll be honest with you. Another thing you don't want to do is to, and this kind of goes along with some of the other advice, like the Trapper John advice and the favorites advice is you don't want to be the public money better. But at the same time, you also don't want to oppose massive live movement. A public money better, and there's sites out there that show you where the public money is and where it isn't. Public money means just uh, money that's bet by the average amateur sports better. And sharp money is money that's bet by those who win or at least come close to winning in sports. Those who are more knowledgeable sports bettors. You obviously want to bet with sharps. The public money, you typically want to avoid betting with the public too often. Sometimes the public and the sharps go the same way. So uh, that's the correct way to bet in those cases. But if you always find yourself with the public, if you always find yourself betting to what John Q. Sports Better is betting, you're going to lose. So go to sites that show the, the the betting percentage of certain sides. Some some sites will even show the uh, ticket percentage and the money percentage. The ticket percentage of the the number of sport sports betting tickets that went to each side, and the money shows uh, of the total money wagered. Sometimes they're different. But if the number of tickets wagered always seem to be the side that you're going with, then you're not going to win long-term. If you're always betting with the public, you're not going to win long-term. 
And then the associated thing I was mentioning here about betting against strong line movement. When a sportsbook moves the line, it's because the sportsbook feels that uh, they want people to bet the other way. And sometimes they do it for balance reasons. They just don't want to have too much risk on one side or the other. But sometimes they will also do it because they have a feeling about the game. So let's say you have an NBA basketball game where nothing else changes. There wasn't an injury or anything. We're just everything's the same except the line moves from uh, minus two to minus six and a half. Well, what you don't want to do at that point is bet on the underdog at plus six and a half. And you might say, wait a minute. No, this sounds better because you're you're getting four and a half extra points than had you bet earlier in the day. This sounds like a great deal. The reason you don't want to do that is because if they're moving the line to that extent, if they're moving the line by four and a half points, giving four and a half extra points to those who still want to bet the underdog, there's a reason for that. And that, that's usually because the sports book has a strong feeling that, in this case, the favorite will win. Whichever way it's moving, they're trying to make it worse on those who are betting on that side. So wherever the line is getting worse, that's often what the sports book feels is the correct side of the game. And they're trying to dissuade people from continuing to bet that way. Since uh, they, they usually don't just close bets and say, sorry, nobody can bet this anymore. They just keep moving the line to make it unpalatable to those who, who wanted to bet it before. Or in some cases, they move it enough to where it actually does become uh, more of a 50-50 bet. But often where they stop is still a good way to bet. Now, I'm not saying you should always bet that side. I'm not saying that if the line has moved a massive way, you should bet on the side that, that the line got worse for, because sometimes it moved enough, again, as I said, to where it uh, it's it's kind of like a 50-50 proposition at that point. But if you're going to bet something like that, you, you need to bet on the one, on the side that got worse, not the side that got better. If the line has moved one way, then you should either bet with it or avoid it. You should not say, oh, look at these extra points I'm getting and then bet the other side. That will especially not end well for you. And, you know, I've seen it. There's a a wagering thread where people post their bets on Poker Fraudler. It's called the Flying Stupidity Wagering Thread. And I I don't... usually like to speak up and say, oh, your bet sucks, because that's just kind of an asshole thing to do. But I've seen it where someone says, oh, I really like this side, and then I see, I look at the line movement, and I see that it's moved big time the other way, and I've, I've seen where, uh, and I see the sharps, and the sharps are all betting the other way, and I go, oh, boy, this person's going to lose. And in fact, sometimes I want to bet the other way, because <laughs> I'm seeing all the indications that I, it's going to go the opposite way this person's betting. So pay attention to things like that. And if, if a side you like, if it just seems like the line's getting better and better for you, that's a bad sign. That means the casino wants you to bet that way. And you must wonder, why do they want that? Sometimes it's to put even money on each side, and sometimes it is not. 
So these are some general principles of sports betting. They're not going to make you into a winning sports better if you're not. But they will stop you from losing as badly, and they'll stop you from making some stupid mistakes. And I, I guess if I have to finish off with, with two more things. Number one, beware of false prophets. I mean, touts that you have to pay for that claim for this much money per month they're going to give you winning picks. You have to ask the age-old question, if this is true, why aren't they just betting their own picks for more money? It's not like props where it's hard to get money down. If they're just giving you picks on this week's NFL game, why can't they get more money on it? It's not that hard. There's many different places to bet NFL games. Why? Why would these people who are such genius NFL pickers be selling their picks instead of just betting big money on them if they're such geniuses? And even watch out for people online who aren't selling their picks that are just hot for the moment and you somehow believe that they know something you don't. You have to look for long-term success, not just someone who's been winning over the last three weeks. And... Number two, I guess the last uh, piece of advice that I could give you here is bankroll management, just like poker. Do not bet so much on any particular sporting contest to where this is the money you need to pay your rent or to feed your family or to send your kids to college or anything essential or just that it would devastate your sports betting bankroll to where maybe your life will be okay, but the money you've kind of set aside that you're willing to lose gambling uh, will be devastated. Even if you've been hot recently, it's, it's very tempting to keep increasing your bets and firing bigger and bigger so you can just really make big money. You know what's going to happen? Eventually you're going to lose and it's going to get all wiped out and a, and a great winning streak will have been ruined. I'm not saying you can't press every so often or if you're feeling like you're going well that you can kick the bet up somewhat, but don't kick it up exponentially or you're going to be sorry. I know somebody, I'm not going to say who it is, but I know somebody who was typically a a lower limit sports better. I shouldn't say lower limit, uh, kind of a moderate sports better, bet on like $200 a game. And they started going well. And they started betting 500 a game, and they kept going well, and they bet 1,000 a game. Then they started betting 2,000, and 5,000, 10,000. Well, pretty soon, their online sports betting account, which they funded with a few hundred bucks, was up to 120K. That's an amazing success story, huh? Wouldn't it be nice if this story ended with this guy just hitting the cash out button at that point and walking away with an extra 120k, which believe me, uh, this guy needed? Well, guess how much he walked away with? I think you know. Zero point zero. He didn't know when to stop. He just kept pressing and pressing until finally the hot streak ended, and it just took. A short losing streak to wipe it all out because he started, he was betting so big. The whole 120K was gone, and he felt very, very foolish. And that's inevitable because eventually you will go on a losing streak, and if you keep increasing your bets as you're winning, 
then you will go on a losing streak. And because your bets are so much bigger now, it doesn't even take that long to wipe out everything you won. So be careful with your bankroll management. Oh, I guess one more one more thing I thought of. If whatever strategy, I'm talking about general sports betting strategy, whatever you've come up with is working for the moment, keep doing it. But if you start to struggle, be honest with yourself and say, maybe it's not just bad luck. Maybe what I did last season isn't working this season. Maybe what works in the first half of the season works doesn't work in the second half of the season. Sports are constantly changing, and things even change as seasons go along, and even sometimes rules are changed, or philosophies of the game change. And Sometimes what was a winning strategy in the past is no longer a winning strategy anymore. And it's, it's important that you are honest with yourself of not just if you used to win with this strategy, but if you can still presently win. And you need to see the difference between just negative variance, which will happen to everybody, and a strategy which just doesn't work anymore. And I've dealt with that myself and have modified things, just as I have done in poker, when I see that I'm not doing as well as I once did, and I say, am I just having bad luck, or am I playing a style that doesn't work very well with today's game? And sometimes I'll look and I go, hmm, actually, some of my style does not work very well with today's game. I shall change it. So you need to do the same with sports. You need to constantly be evaluating the strategies you're using and seeing if not only are they good strategies at the point you came up with them, but are they still good today? And sometimes the strategy, which actually was a positive expectation strategy a year ago, two years ago, or even earlier this season, is no longer the right way to approach things. Those are my sports betting tips. If you do bet sports, I wish you luck this season. And please listen to much of what I said there. Because most professional sports bettors will tell you that what I said is mostly true. Or perhaps even all true. Which would be a big ringing endorsement. But no, really, you should listen to this advice. It's uh, useful. Especially if you're kind of an amateur sports better who just likes to fire because you're a degenerate. Okay. That's about it. Bonus sports betting tip. On UFC or boxing matches, stay away from the favorites. Just they're usually poorly valued. Look for underdogs or small favorites, which you feel have good value. Okay, we're going to be back next week, probably on Friday again. Looking at the schedule for December, this is the holiday season. We have Christmas, we have Hanukkah, we have New Year's. Now, Christmas and New Year's are in the middle of the week this time. But I can tell you, we should have a show on Friday, probably on the 13th, December 13th, 2019. Probably December 20th. And probably 
December 27th, so there's a possibility I'll move it back to the 26th. And uh, there's a good chance we'll have it on uh, January 3rd, 2020. But I may move that to the 4th. I'm just kind of looking at things I have scheduled on those days. and We'll have a show every week. Just may have to shift one or two during the week of Christmas and New Year's. Like one or two, maybe like one or two days. But should be pretty close. Just follow twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert. For that information, I thank you for listening tonight, as always. Remember, we're on every week here, for the most part. Once in a while, I miss one, but usually pretty regularly on every week. Thank you, Trader Ruski. Thank you, Willie McFML, for your donation tonight. I have an announcement for pretty soon, something that Eric Benzamokin is doing for the show. Stay tuned. Shalom. Shalom.